WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 283. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 938 in the Chicago Hilton Hotel in downtown Chicago, Illinois. In today's episode, a close call between an airliner and missile test in North Korea, a flight encounters hail, a teenager opens a door and slides to the tarmac while the aircraft is taxiing in. More news, your feedback, and a new Plain Tales segment, the number nine combustor. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 283 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show, the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I am an airline pilot and a guy. Hence, airline pilot guy. And I work for a major U.S. legacy carrier here uh, in the States. And joining me today from across the pond, we have... 1,000. An Airbus wide-body captain for a major European carrier. 500. Professional photographer, ex-fighter pilot in the Royal Air Force and Royal Australian Air Force, Captain Nick... Anderson. Hi there, Jeff. And uh, again, a pleasure to join you. Just us then, the two old captains. What a fascinating show this is going to be. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> what are yeah. we doing? <laughs> yeah, we're going to miss uh, Steph uh, and Dana. Uh, I mean, Steph's uh, out having fun. Dana's on his motorcycle. We're the only guys who are old and boring enough to be uh, sitting in front of our microphones. Yeah. We're not out there exploring the uh, southwestern United States on a big Harley-Davidson motorcycle, nor are we jet-setting down to the lovely Central American country of Costa Rica. Oh, well. We're going to have fun anyway, though, aren't we? Oops. Pushed I'm just going to drink a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need a pina colada, and that way I'll feel like I'm, you know, heading down. I don't know. Do they drink? Pina coladas in Costa Rica? Probably not. Anyway, some kind of a rum drink, I'm sure. So uh, we're going to hear from uh, Steph in, uh, well, very soon, because she sent us a little bit of audio feedback regarding a, a meetup in Berlin uh, coming up in September. So so how have you been? I'm pretty good. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, not much has happened since last week. I haven't done any trips. I'm on my uh, part-time days off. So, uh, yeah, I've just been... Uh, Playing a few games of bowls, um, you know, catching up on a bit of sleep, walking the dogs, uh, and uh, yeah, that's about it, really. Okay, that sounds like enough to me. Um, and you know, it just seems like we just recorded the last episode just a few days ago. Oh, hey, what it was? <laughs> it was just a few days ago. <laughs> well, actually, I, what day is today? Is today the? Oh, it's Wednesday. It's it's further along in the week than I thought. It was last uh, Thursday night, I believe, that we recorded uh, episode two. It's just time just flies, doesn't it? 
Well, you, you've been uh, very busy, haven't you? You've yeah. been uh, whizzing around uh, the uh, wonderful country of America, north uh, and uh, and down down as far as Mexico. Was, I, was that right? I did. So we recorded Thursday night, and on Friday I started uh, doing some of the editing for the show. And um, or was it Friday that we did the show? I don't know. Uh, I I could check and see. Let me see. APG. Because it seems like I'm, I, I ran out of time. No, it was Thursday. Okay. Anyway. It's, um, it's like a long time ago. Yeah, just, oh, I know. Maybe it was Friday I was doing, oh, I had the big uh, plumbing project or something. Or maybe, yeah. I don't know. I'm all confused now. But anyway, whatever. I got a, I picked up a trip on uh, Saturday and Sunday to, uh, to ferry, a, a maintenance ferry down to, um, QRO, Querétaro, or something like that. I'm not very good at pronouncing that, but it's a place, a city to the uh, north, northwest of Mexico City. And uh, and that was kind of a, it turned out to be a little fiasco because when we, uh, we took a very early flight Saturday morning, um, 6.30 departure, flew down there, had to make our way around some pretty nasty weather in the uh, southern United States, but we Finally cleared that and uh, made our way down to QRO, and we got in, and we headed over to the Aeromexico ticket counter and said, okay, we're here. We're ready now to fly on Aeromexico, your next flight leaving in an hour to Monterey. And they said, they were doing some typing on the computer, and they were looking at the screen, looking at us, and looking at the screen. They go, uh, we, we don't see you in, in here. And we said, excuse me? <laughs> So we called our company and then this is one of those things that, you know, you deal with all the time because you fly internationally, but I don't, you know, we don't have, uh, I don't have uh, international plan on my, on my phone. So uh, luckily my co-pilot did, he had T-Mobile and he said, no problem. I'll call, I'll call uh, the uh, Acme crew tracking people and see what's going on. And so after a lot of hemming and hawing, is that right? Hemming and hawing? Uh, they said, uh, yeah, looks like the person that was responsible for getting you guys tickets, uh, uh, they didn't. And I said, okay, what are we going to do now? And they said, well, let us work on it. So we sat in the uh, airport terminal for, I don't know, a couple hours while they tried to figure out what they were going to do with us. And then finally they said, okay, here's the plan. Uh, we're, we've called transportation. They're going to come and get you. You're going to go to the hotel and QRO. Uh, it's a Crown Plaza about a half an hour drive from the hotel, I mean, from the airport. And uh, then tomorrow morning, you're going to take the six o'clock flight or 630 flight to Mexico City. And then you're going to deadhead on an Acme 737 from Mexico City to Atlanta. So that's what we did. Worked out well. Um, although my first officer, he uh, deviated from the uh, deadhead because he uh, actually lives in Los Angeles, another new hire. Uh, but uh, Anyway, so it, it turned out to be a, a relatively decent trip, but uh, that was my adventure over the weekend. Well, must admit, you did say that your connection uh, down there onto Aeromexico was going to be tight. I didn't realize it was going to be so tight you weren't going to get on the airplane. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, if, if somebody had bought a ticket for us, we, you know, yeah, it wouldn't you have probably been, would have been fine. fine. Yeah, it, I always find with ours, uh, it's the one off um, trips, for usually without passengers, where you're positioning an aircraft or uh, picking up an airplane that's been broken. They are the most dreadfully organized trips because. No one really gives them very much priority. No, no priority at all. No passengers. You know, who cares? No, no, exactly right. So they're always the worst. Yeah, they uh, gave us a captain's phone 
uh, a little uh, well, quite a few years ago now. It's the it's like a, a relic of the 1970s. But <laughs> if I do need to, I can turn it on and use it in any country, and and the company picks up the tab. So. That's always been rather handy. The only problem I find is that whenever I turn it on, because I only use it like twice a year, um, the battery's flat. <laughs> no. I was going to say, it's like 70s vintage. Is like, it has a dial on it, and you have to pick it up. Yeah, and- just about. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it fits in your shoe. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, uh, shoe phone. Yeah. Get smart. Yeah, shoe phone. <laughs> nice. That's, I'd like to have a shoe phone. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, um, I don't know if our guys have that kind of thing or not, but uh, I don't know. doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, got through um, customs and immigration in Mexico rather quickly because it was just two of us, and we were in between passenger flights, so that worked out well. And then coming back into Atlanta, I used um, an app that I'd heard from um, uh, Johnny Jett on uh, one of the shows I'd like to listen to on uh, the the tech uh, network uh, twit tech ne- this week in technology network and it's called uh, and it worked out well i don't have global what is it called global traveler or whatever uh, i don't have all that fancy stuff but i uh, did have this app called mobile pass that's a mobile passport app and it allows you to kind of fill out all the information that you need to present when you're coming back into the country and worked worked like a charm so i whizzed right through a special line and used this machine and held up the barcode on it and got right back in. So it wasn't that big of a deal at all. Is that just for Americans going home or could I use it? I think it's just, um, U.S. I, I think it's just us, uh, citizens. Sorry, but I'm not sure. I don't, don't quote me on that. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know <laughs> anyway. Uh, so that was it. And then, um, back out on, Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. I got the show out on Monday, the last show, and then uh, uh, left yesterday morning. This is a great trip. Um, One leg yesterday from Atlanta to Raleigh-Durham, and then a nice long layover. Got to do a lot of prep work for today's show while I was there in Raleigh-Durham. And the reason why I did that was I was going to rent a car, and I was going to drive over and see my daughter, who was in um, Elon University, except that uh, she... I found out a couple days before I left on this trip that she was actually driving home the day that I was going to visit her. Wow, <laughs> so good time. she's at home right now and I'm not. Oh, well, uh, hopefully she'll still be there by the time I get back from this trip. Uh, today was nice and easy. An early uh, start, 4.30 pickup at the hotel, but uh, we just flew from Raleigh-Durham to Detroit and then Detroit to here, Chicago. And uh, so I got in a couple hours ago and nice, nice long layover again here. And then uh, again, just two legs tomorrow, end up in Baltimore. By the way, uh, Hillel said, hey, what are you going to do in Baltimore tomorrow? And I said, I don't know. You know, probably do some editing on this show, uh, a little bit anyway. And otherwise, maybe uh, we'll get together. And uh, First Officer Craig, uh, if you're listening, maybe uh, if you're available, we can get together sometime tomorrow, later in the afternoon, have a beer or two. And uh, anybody else in the area, if you're listening live right now, uh, check it out. Uh, see if see if we're gonna be doing a, a meetup or not. I think we are. So, and uh, that's it. All caught up. Talking of meetups, I'm desperately gonna hear. Here we go. Um, I was uh, getting in touch with a few guys from San Francisco because uh, on the twelfth, I'll be in San Francisco, and by the looks of it, um. 
Fred will be there. And uh, I'm looking here, trying to read all this. Brian might be there. Uh, and uh, a few other guys. I can't actually find the thread now, which is actually classic. I think Jim uh, Mercado, our, our designer our, of the uh, Acme logo, yeah. I think That's he's going to try to make it. Boeing bound Bry. Well, a West Coast meetup. That's wonderful. It's my father's birthday, so I might have been able to make it. Well, with a name like that, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Airbus bound Bry I want to meet. No, no, there's going to be a few of us there. But yeah. Work. So I haven't picked a, uh, a location yet. So if anyone uh, who wants to come wants to get uh, join that thread on Slack and suggest a location somewhere near the Hilton um, – financial district hotel or somewhere we got all day but i was planning on a sort of evening meeting since it's a work day and most people will be uh, probably working um okay. the 12th of work day 12th so that's like 10 days from today right today's the second yeah oh it's actually gonna be a saturday oh well no, that should be a good day for my, yeah. a lot of people a suggestion for somewhere in the afternoon then we could you know like Go to somewhere like an airport if there's a decent uh, restaurant there. I could see if someone would give me a lift. Anyway, if anyone's got any good ideas, uh, please yeah. get on a Slack and let me know. Well, check it out. If you're not already on Slack, you need to do so. And I'm sure that that's where the discussion will be taking place and details about the meetup. Um, so if you're in the uh, north uh, Northern California area, make sure that you uh, meet up with Captain Nick. You'll yep. be sorry if you're you not did. on Slack, don't worry. Uh, as soon as we get the details finalized, I'll let you know on either Twitter or Facebook and or both. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, as long as we're talking about meetups, um, got this from, let's see here, Richard. He says, Jeff, I've been watching your schedule on and off. Realized you're coming to Little Rock next month. He sent this to me in July. I live in Little Rock and would love to meet up if possible, go out for a beer, barbecue, something like that. Uh, let's see. Also, I see you're getting in early in the day. If you're available and up for it, we can possibly go down to a town called Pine Bluff, which is where my grandfather has a World War II North American AT-6, if you'd be interested in checking that out. Either way, would love to meet up, and even if it's just for dinner or lunch or something. So not sure exactly what we're going to be doing that week as far as uh, recording and that kind of thing, but uh, definitely plan on uh, meeting up at least for uh, a lunch or a dinner or something like that. So uh, we'll we'll have to play that by year. But again, that's uh, Little Rock, and I should probably check my schedule so that I have or you have some idea of when I'm going to be there in Little Rock. And it looks like it's going to be the seventh, which is Monday next week. So hopefully, excellent. If you're this show should be published by then, and uh, if you're listening to this right now, and that date has not elapsed, and you're in, wait a minute, no, that's not right. It's the 8th, Tuesday. Um, the first day I'm in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. The second day I'm in Little Rock on the 8th of July, Tuesday. So uh, that'd be uh, fun to uh, meet you if you're in the area. Okay. And uh, let's see. The other thing I was going to do is um, play some audio from Dr. Steph regarding a meetup in Berlin. Hello, APGers. It's Dr. Steph. I hope you're all enjoying the show today, and I'm sorry I can't be there with you all. 
um, as we speak. It's a couple hours before the show's actually supposed to start, and I am here at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport waiting for uh, my flight. I'm going on vacation for the next couple of days um, through the weekend, and very excited to have some time off of work and just to relax and do nothing for a little while. Anyway, I wanted to let you all know about a meetup that we are in the process of planning, and this is specifically for, uh, or mainly for those of you in uh, Europe and specifically near Germany. Um, many of you know I'm running the Berlin Marathon on September 24th, and I've been talking with a few of the um, APGers over in that part of the world, and we're planning on a meetup, which we're going to have on September 22nd at about 7 p.m., and this is going to take place um, Tillman, uh, our EPG listener over there in Berlin, has graciously offered his Circus Hotel Brewery or Circus Microbrewery for us to use as a venue for this. Um, and again, that'll be September 22nd, 7 p.m. at the Circus Hotel Brewery in Berlin. Uh, we'll have more details about this coming up in the next couple of weeks. And I'm looking forward to seeing any of you who can make it to that meetup. And again, hope you're enjoying the show today. Sorry, I can't be there again. I look forward to seeing all of you next week. Cheers, y'all. That sounds like she's like beating up a child or something. <laughs> Steph, come on. I know you're stressed out, but gosh, leave the children right. alone. <laughs> she says, uh, have, have a holiday, relax and not do anything. And then she promptly says she'd go to Berlin for a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, our Steph. <laughs> that's yeah, that's that's nothing. You know, Thank and then God. and then the next week, I think she's in Tokyo. And then the next week she's in Chicago running another marathon. Unbelievable. Crazy. <laughs> but I am so jealous of Steph to going uh, to get to go to Tillman's Hotel. And, Me too. And taste that beer because we all got that wonderful gift of a, a pint glass from uh, uh, Stein, I should say. Yeah. Uh, from uh, Tillman, which has our, have our names engraved on it and mm -hmm. says it is a glass that it's a magic glass. It will never empty. So I think he means if we ever pitch up at his hotel with our glass bit, our sticky mitts. You will uh, top it up and keep it topped up all night, which sounds fabulous. It does. And and Steph said uh, she was sure to pack her stein. And these are like heavy steins. I said, you know what? You could probably just use one of the ones he has there at his brewery. And she said, yeah, but it's not an, an you know an endless supply of beer. Only yeah, if I have the one with it's my not name. The magic one. Yeah. So I look forward. I am jealous too. I, I'm, I'm I look forward to uh, having my crystal stein and uh, in, in engraved stein with me and then enjoying that great beer at Tillman's place. Well, I'm, I'm very kind of upset because we've already booked a holiday in Italy. Oh. Uh, and um, the 22nd is the day after we arrive. And I think if I um, took my wife to Italy and then the very next day jumped on a flight to Berlin, uh, a divorce papers might be waiting for me in my empty room when I returned. That, that <laughs> so, would not go over well. <laughs> no, it would not go over well. So uh, I'm going to miss uh, the chance to go down to Berlin. And once more, Steph is coming through London on her way home. And I'm going to miss the chance to see her there as well. Because oh. I'll, I'll be soaking up the rays on an Italian beach somewhere. Oh, boy. Yeah, oh, well. Sad. That's just the way life is, I guess. Well, I know. Bad organization. That's yeah. the story of my life. <laughs> you need a secretary. I do too. Need somebody mm. to organize my life. Anyway, anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? I don't think so. Well, let's do it.
Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, Coffee Fun is your way to support the show financially. And, you know, a lot of you support the show by sending in feedback and just being there and downloading the show and everything else. But if you have the financial resources to do so and you don't need to spend the money on essentials in your life, like the roof over your head, clothes on your body, food in your tummy, or even flying lessons, that is very, very important. So if you're not spending your money on that kind of stuff and you have some leftover and you want to support the show, please, let, we're not going to stop you from heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee where you can support us and become part of the coffee fund cadre. We have a couple different ways to do that. One is the uh, pay, or the uh, yeah the PayPal, and we call it the uh, coffee fund classic method. Uh since the last show, and it was just a few days ago, so no problem. Uh, no uh, contributions via that, and we did have um, the other way of supporting the show is uh, via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show, and uh, Roger, uh, Radio Roger, became a patron a while back, not too long ago, and he's already doubled his uh, per-episode pledge, so thank you very much, Roger, for that. No new patrons this week, but... Um, you know, that's okay. As I said, it was a short week. <laughs> if you want to uh, become part of the uh, group of supporters, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. And and a wrong one. Taking it so I think that was the wrong lyric. <laughs> me coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup boy yeah stand by for news Let's start off with uh, the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association, Air Venture 2017. Last week, we talked quite a bit about it on the show. Uh, I had a chance to actually go in the middle of the uh, of my trip last week on Wednesday, actually a week from yeah, uh, yeah a week ago today, and got it got to meet up with some fine APG people. And uh, let's see, I saw this in some. A news article says the EAA Air Venture 2017 breaks records. The scope of the show is breathtaking. This year's included the U.S. Navy's Blue Angels, the world's only two B-29 Super Fortress bombers, the awesome B-1B bomber, and flocks of immaculately restored warbirds from World War II and since 
through to the very latest with the U.S. Air Force showing off two F-35 Lightning II fighters. And it goes on talking about the show and all the great airplanes and uh, demonstrations, etc. And then finally, EAA Air Venture 2017 broke all records, according to Jack Pelton, the CEO and president of the Experimental Aircraft Association, with crowds over 600,000. More than most of those were APG listeners. Yeah, most of them. Yeah, I'd say probably at least 500,000. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, not really. Uh, But they're potential APG community members, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, more than more than 15,500 aircraft movements were recorded through Saturday, July 29th, making Oshkosh's Whitman Field the busiest airport in the world for the week. So uh, that was, uh, as I said, I had a great time. I wish that I could have uh, spent more time there, but uh, alas, my schedule did not allow for it. But uh, uh, we did have a bunch of folks there uh, representing the uh, APG community. And in fact, the very next day, on Thursday, uh, there was a, an APG meetup at the Brown Arch. And I'd like to uh, send a big, big thank you to Mike Carroll's Dispatcher Mike, uh, the host of the Flying and Life podcast. That man is a podcasting monster. <laughs> he is just all over the place with his microphone and interviewing people and everything else. And he was able to uh, record some audio at the uh, APG meetup at the Brown Arch on Thursday last week so let's take a listen all right so this is dispatcher mike here in oshkosh we are just outside of the golden arch for an apg meetup and we have three six nine twelve uh public math 15 18 19 of us almost 20 apg years are here uh at the brown arch so I am going to go through around and uh, get everyone's name. If you want to say anything, I will uh, go ahead and make sure we get this to uh, to the crew. So let's start here. I'm David Allen with Other People's Airplanes up here from Florida with my girlfriend Beth. We're camping in Bacon and shooting a lot of video and putting stories out on our uh, YouTube channel at Fly OPA. Does he know? Do, do the other people's air people that own the other airplanes? Do they know that he's flying other people's airplanes? I'm just wondering. Why is it called Camp Bacon? I didn't name it, but it sounds like a great place to be. And um, it actually, there's a long story, but I'm not going to get into it. It's just, it's the place to camp at Scholar. Okay, sounds good. All right, moving again. Hi, I'm Glenn Otto from Spring Grove, Illinois. Uh, We're camping up here. We drove up here yesterday. We'll be here through Sunday. Beautiful. Hello, I'm Matt Donnermeyer from uh, Cincinnati. Drove up. I have to drive back. That's a sad situation. And we're starting. We're uh, standing under a green tree. So there's some keywords for you. Great. Beautiful. Mr. Evan Shu. Hey, I'm Evan from Australia. I've come a long way to be here. And it's my f- longer than you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I drove all the way from Denver with my boss to be here actually in Oshkosh. And um, it's been amazing, mind-blowing. There's nothing like this to this scale in Australia. So it's just amazing to be here and to meet everyone. Beautiful. Hey, Steve Nicholson, a.k.a. Louisiana Steve, uh, here from Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, great to be with the community. That's uh, Steve Fisher here from Plane Crazy Down Under, Melbourne, Australia, formerly of the Australia Desk on the Airplane Geeks, and uh, back at Oshkosh for the second time, and uh, this year representing the Sydney Air Show. So come and visit us in Sydney. Um, we need to talk later. It's very nice to meet you. I'm glad you're feeling better and you're uh, vertical today. Yeah, yeah, I spent most of this week in bed, but I'm glad to be up upright today. <laughs> Beautiful. 
I'm Jerry Baumgartner, Romeoville, Illinois, longtime listener uh, in the presence of giants here. Good to be here camping out in Camp Scholler. Jerry, do you fly? I do. I, uh, I've, I'm a member of the Civil Air Patrol, do a lot of uh, work with them, and uh, that's about the extent of my flying. I do a lot. Mustangs. Gosh. Um, are you based at a very great airport called the Lewis University Airport? I am very near the Lewis University Airport. I live right down the street from them. Okay, gotcha. Hi, Sue Folkringer, a.k.a. Comanche Sue. I flew up here in a Piper Comanche. This is my ninth year coming to Oshkosh. Just want to thank Jeff and the crew for the podcast. Just love it. And the community. Yeah, the community is the best part. I mean, where else can you say, hey, we're going to be at a Brown Arch and, and everyone come and 20 people show up? Um, hello. Who are you? Hi, my name is Jen Nipper, and I have APG syndrome. Um, is this, should we start a support group? I mean, I mean, it's almost like we need to start a support group. Hi, I'm Jen. I have APG syndrome. Hi, Jen. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, you all know me. I'm from a certain Midwestern mid-sized airport here at AirVenture having a great time. Hello. Hi, I'm Chris Pratt. I'm a new APGer, but I've come to meet a bunch of my Twitter friends, and uh, I'm not the Chris Pratt that everybody talks about now. I got that name first, but uh, it's nice to put some real people to Twitter handles and see that they weren't hiding behind avatars. Yeah, it's kind of nice to know that these are actually human beings, and they're actually pretty cool people in real life, too. Yeah, I'm not so sure about them all being human beings yet. The amount, the amount of ab geekery going on is uh, pretty awesome, but flew in with Flying Doctor 17, and... Uh, Hey, enjoying myself. Beautiful. Hi, I'm Marty, uh, pilot to be on Twitter. This is my 11th consecutive Oshkosh. Uh, camping at Camp Bacon with a bunch of other great people. Beautiful. And it's John Brown, Flying Doctor 17. We just uh, flew in yesterday, Chris and I, and uh, met up with Captain Jeff yesterday. He handed off the, uh, the great Canadian ale package, and he almost broke his back. I hope he's recovering. And you'll get better soon, Jeff. So uh, we're uh, enjoying meeting up all these people. Uh, Evan Shu from Down Under. I had dinner with him last night. So getting to know a lot of the uh, the folks we see in the in the in the chat room and on the uh, on the website. So great to be here. Beautiful. Hi, my name is Carl Bauman. I'm uh, based in the D.C. area near Dulles Airport to fly to Leesburg Executive. I'm a private pilot right now. I just graduated high school and uh, moving on to college soon. And eventually I want to fly for an airline, so that's my goal. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here in Oshkosh, uh, having a great time. This is my third time, and uh, thank you for uh, having me right here. I appreciate it. Love to meet you. Hey, everyone. It's Jake Hanner from Alabama. Just having a great time here at Oshkosh, hanging out with the uh, APG folks. Hi, I'm Nick Camacho. Uh, I've sent a couple feedbacks uh, back when I was living in Kansas, or California, uh, now, based, now based in Kansas. Uh, this is my 17th AirVenture. Uh, I have a Bonanza, but unfortunately took on a couple of uh, tasks that were a little larger undertaking than I had hoped, so ended up riding up here with a buddy and a baron from Wichita. Gotcha. I'm Hillel, voice of Slack and um, came up here in our Cherokee and we're camping on the North 40 and it's a lot of fun to see so many APGers come out to meet up with us and this is, this is really cool. Next year I'm sure it'll be bigger. It was very nice of Captain Jeff to let you out of the closet in his suitcase for a week to come here. Yeah, you know, he told me he was going to give me all this free flying and I get all over the place. He didn't exactly mention he's going to keep me in the suitcase the whole time. 
Oh, hey everyone, it's David Abbey, uh, hanging out with this great APG meetup, and I'm at David Abbey, A-B-B-E-Y on Twitter, and a big fan of the Airline Pilot Guy Show, as some of you may know, and it is great to be here, and just want to say that Mike is a podcasting machine, an interview machine. No, I'm not. <laughs> Hello, my name is Aaron Miller. I'm Twitter Miller Law MD, and I have a website, finalflightfinalfight.com, where I talk about the book I'm writing about my grandmother, who was a wasp in World War II, and the fight that my family went through to get her recognized at Arlington National Cemetery, which is also the subject of the talk I'll be doing here at Oshkosh tomorrow at 11:30. Where's your talk going to be at? 11:30 a.m. Forum Four. That's a very important fight. I've heard about it. So thank you for your work of, of doing all of that. Well, thanks to the aviation community. They're all super helpful. And we actually had three T-6s and three P-51s do a flyover at her funeral at Arlington National Cemetery in, in uh, September. And I know at least that one P-51 and one T-6 is here at Oshkosh this year. So That's awesome. I'm Glenn, of course, the uh, co-host of the Flying in Life podcast at Oshkosh. Uh, I'm NZ Aircraft fan on Twitter. And ended aircraft fam on Instagram. Uh, finally enjoying this week. It's been absolutely great to meet people like Mike and David, and and there's two P51s drowning me out, which is nice. Uh, it's just been the most amazing week. The weather has been if good most of the time, and uh, yeah, it's just been a really, really good year. And uh, here's the next year, and uh, a great APG meetup. All right, so I think I got pretty much everybody. Uh, I think all of us around here could uh, would agree with me as the uh, as the Ford Trimotor takes off. I mean, this is Avgeek Heaven. If you have the opportunity to come to Oshkosh, please uh, make sure you do it. Even if you have to come from New Zealand or Australia, find a way to come here once if you love airplanes. So uh, all of us would like to invite the APG crew here to uh, to Oshkosh sometime soon. We would love to have a uh, Farnborough style uh, meetup here in uh, Oshkosh eventually. So this is Mike for the Airline Pilot Guy Show here in Oshkosh. Signing off. Ah, that was so good. Thank you again, Mike, for uh, doing all that. And uh, really, really do appreciate that. And I'm sorry that I wasn't able to be there on Thursday for that. Hey, did you notice at the very beginning, uh, Mike said at the Golden Arch, I think I think he, that was like a subconscious thing. I think he was uh, craving uh, hamburgers from McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never been there, and I would love to one year. But uh, there is actually a brown arch and a golden arch, I guess. I guess. In, in, in uh, Mike's mind, there's a golden arch right next to that brown arch, I guess. <laughs> but it sounds like a fantastic place that uh, gets a lot of aviators together. And uh, you know, to get all those APG listeners in one place, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely brilliant. Thanks yeah. very much, Mike. And a lot of those folks that he uh, interviewed on Thursday, I got a chance to meet while I was there on Wednesday. So to all of okay. you, uh, you know, uh, really enjoyed seeing you there and met some new people, too. So that's cool. And one of those folks that Mike was interviewing there, Glenn Taller from New Zealand, Wellington, to be exact, uh, also sent in some audio feedback. Let's take a listen to Glenn. Uh, g'day, it's uh, Glenn here from New Zealand, and I'm sure you know my voice quite well by now. And I'm here at Oshkosh, 
just walking there at Boeing Plaza, taking in the sights. To my right, I've got a B-52 Buff. And then behind, next there's a P-51C, RC-12. For those of you who don't know, it's a Beach King Air, reconnaissance aircraft from the US Army. They've just pulled in a, uh, by tug, an F-22 Raptor. Next that is Dock. Next to that is Composites. It's a hard-looking egg jet aircraft. Then next to that is an F-16, KC-135, P-8 Poseidon, B-1B, uh, one of Pip's favorite plane, a Embraer Venom. Painted up a Millennium Falcon, which looks really cool. And then right in front of me, Colonel Jess, one of uh, Colonel Jess' favorite aircraft, an F-15 Eagle C model from the Louisiana, not the Louisiana National Guard, I think. Anyway, uh, been an awesome week. Meeting up with Dispatcher Mike again, Jennifer, Dave Allen, Dave Abbey, sorry, not Dave Allen, he's a different guy. Uh, I met a guy called uh, Neil Taylor yesterday. Super nice guy from another fellow APG syndrome sufferer introduced me to a few of his um, New Zealand friends of all things. There was a guy called Dave Phillips, I think it is. He's actually a test pilot for the De Havilland Mosquito for Avspex. So he's like a very interesting guy. So I hope to try and get a, an interview with him later in the day, maybe before the night show. Try and see him before we go to dinner tonight. This is my, as I think I said, my this is my last full day at the air show. So, oh, super cool. Oh yeah, and there's also here a a HH-47G Chinook, which is basically a special forces type aircraft, all painted in black. A very special looking aircraft with a lot of sensors and uh, more than its four fair share of guns. Two Gatling guns at the front. Two what they call, uh, they call Mag 58 7.62 machine guns. So looking forward to a really great day. Blue Angels are flying today. The bomber fly pass is happening today. It was great to meet Jeff again on, on Wednesday. We had a pretty good meet up on Thursday as well. Uh, that's it really. Uh, blue skies, tailwinds and carbo to you all. Glenn out. Always good to hear the airplanes in the background. That was while Glenn was still at Oshkosh, and now I believe he's home. He either got home early this morning or maybe yesterday, but uh, he just got home relatively recently. Welcome home, and it was a it was a blast seeing you not only at Oshkosh but also in Atlanta the week before and going to the baseball game and all that. That was a lot of fun. Oh, he's uh, so I mean, I'm amazed that guy comes halfway around the world for a show, but I know he spent a lot of time visiting uh, people and dropping in places on the way. He's quite the world traveler, is Uncle. Yeah, and he, uh, he made it over to the uh, U.S. Air Force um, Museum over at Dayton, and uh, that's something I have not done yet. So, anyway, very, very good. All right, um, let's see. I guess we can continue with some stuff that we have here in the news folder. Uh, I guess the next one, uh, Nick, you kind of uh, uh, alerted me to this, and 
you thought it was worth talking about, and it was uh, some kind of a study that was done um, by a couple organizations over there in the UK? Yeah, I hope you don't mind me dropping it in, but uh, no. it just arrived in my inbox. Now, um, I'm a member of the British Airline Pilots Association, the uh, major um, airline pilots union in the UK, and um, they sent a report out. Now, they're, they're, uh, they helped fund a study into the risk of uh, a collision with a drone. Now, we've talked about drones a lot, Jeff, haven't we? And we're, we're continually being... Um, uh, highlighted to the dangers, but no one actually knew what the dangers were if you flew into one. We knew a fair amount of much about bird strikes, not only from the testing that's done, but also from the number of bird strikes that have occurred. Um, but no one really knew what was going to happen if a bird hit you. So um, the British military, uh, the Department of Transport, and uh, the British Ellen Pipe Association clubbed together and uh, got the testing authorities to throw a few drones at airplanes. Uh, I mean, the way they do it isn't quite like that. They uh, they set up some uh, windshields and a mock-up cockpit, or it might even be part of a, a real aircraft. Uh, and then they fire down a rail, uh, usually a bird. In this case, they fired drones uh, at the aircraft to see what uh, penetration they would achieve. Uh, and uh, the worst uh, level they were, well, the level they were looking for was quote, critical damage, unquote. Uh, and that's uh, defined as uh, a major structural damage of the aircraft component or penetration of the drone through the windshield into the cockpit. Now, that's, uh, that's about the most serious as it's going to get. Of course, that just really means uh, hitting the airframe. Uh, they didn't investigate the problems of uh, what would happen if it went into an engine. Uh, I think that would be a lot worse. But uh, uh, they highlight that uh, there were 20, uh, sorry, 70 uh, air proxies. That means a drone getting very close to an aircraft, close enough for the crew to think there is a risk of collision. There were 70 in 2016. And so far in 2017, up to the end of May, there have already been 34. So we've already uh, got through half last year's number, and we're not even halfway through, or by the end of May, we weren't halfway through the year. So it's predicted to be more this year. And of course, the number of drones being sold is forever increasing. So I think it was important that someone somewhere in the world actually did some physical tests just to quantify the level of damage. Now, um, what they did was uh, they took various quali uh, yeah, categories of aircraft, really. Um, GA aircraft, helicopters and light aircraft. Uh, and they, of course, don't have to have bird strike certified windshields. Um, they do have a bird strike certified windshield for light aircraft, but that is uh, usually for a commercial style one. So they did non-bird strike certified, bird strike certified, and uh, then airliners with Class A and Class B windshields. Class A is the really thick and heavy. Um, so uh, we're basically looking at uh, the types of collisions. So they uh, looked at various different um, sizes of uh, drone, right down from the little lightweight ones uh, up to 1.2 kilograms. Now that's the sort of uh, DJI Phantom size up to uh, four kilogram quadcopter size. And then uh, up to the even larger ones, which would be um, the sort of DJI S1000 size, which is 
surprisingly only about 1500 quid so it's going to be I don't know, about two thousand dollars um and that's uh, i think uh, it's got eight uh, propellers on it and can carry a, a digital uh single in reflex slr style camera so um what we're really interested in is what kind of damage uh, were they going to do so they discovered that uh, even the lightweight drones would do critical damage. And remember, that means penetrating through the windshield into the aircraft uh, on um, helicopters and uh, light aircraft. Um, the heavier drones would even penetrate a, a helicopter windshield if the helicopter was hovering uh, and the drone was moving forwards. So we're talking about combined speed. So the heavy ones will go straight through the front end of a helicopter, which Ooh. is a significant problem. Yeah. Um, the uh, the smaller, sorry, the uh, bird strike uh, bird strike certified light GA aircraft. Um, the lighter ones, uh, it wasn't uh, definitely um, damaged, but the, certainly the heavy ones would go through the windshield of a uh, bird strike certified GA aircraft. When it came to the airliners. They found that the uh, altitudes and speeds uh, that occurred with penetration, you needed the heavy style of uh, drone, first of all. So three and a half uh, kg would go through a class B, the, the slightly lighter windshield, and the, um, the four kilogram class would go through um, a type A. Uh, now, um, the interesting thing is that DJI one I mentioned, that actually goes up to a max uh, operating weight of 11 kilograms. Ooh. So that's more than twice the weight of the testing ones. Anyway, they discovered that the combined altitude had to be fairly high, but it would penetrate an airliner windshield, um, specifically, particularly, sorry, if it was a metal component. A lot of the larger drones, they do have metal arms, and they have no uh, plastic padding on them at all, really. That would soften the impact. So um, I, it's a very interesting study. It will be out everywhere. I'm sure we can put a copy with the show notes if yeah. you're interested in reading it in detail. Um, but at last, it absolutely, absolutely uh, quantifies the damage that can be done and justifies our concern about having these drones uh, flying around with us. Just out of curiosity, did they do any tests on uh, like plastic bags? No, okay, just kidding. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, they did, of course, uh, look at uh, helicopter rotor damage, and uh, any any size of rotor, uh, sorry, drone will uh, significantly will give critical damage to a rotor, and you take out a helicopter's rotor. That's it. And uh, there's not a lot he can do to survive mm -hmm. uh, or to bring the aircraft down safely. That's for sure. Mm. Well, I'm glad that uh, somebody finally did some kind of a study um, and, you know, as you said, to in an attempt to quantify, you know, what uh, the potential damage could be. And uh, so, again, hopefully, uh, well, you mentioned that the uh, number of incidents is on the rise. Uh, Barbara in the uh, chat room says that she, uh, as she was plane watching, she's already witnessed two drone incidents herself at East Midlands Airport. Within one well, month. for those of us in the UK, uh, I can recommend an app you can get for free. Uh, it's put out by the National Air Traffic Service, NATS, and it's called Drone Assist. And it's a very uh, clever little uh, app. 
and you just uh, turn it on and it works out your position and it plots around you all the areas where you uh, can't or should fly your drone with care uh, and shows you all the areas where you might hit power lines and and um, masts and that sort of thing. So you're less likely to crash your drone, but much more importantly, it shows you where the airfields are, where you might get uh, pleasure flights, where you might get pipeline inspection, helicopters, all those sort of things. Uh, and um, people seem to have a, a blind eye when it comes to this. One of my friends who uh, has a great interest in aviation was having a cup of tea with me the other day, and uh, he said, oh, I've got one or two of these drones from China. He says, they're brilliant. I said, uh, oh, really? Yeah. He says, well, they go very high. I said, well, you know you shouldn't fly them above 400 feet. And he said, oh, no, no, I fly it up to 1,000. I said, <laughs> you, know that, you know that's illegal. You know, there are aircraft flying around above 500 feet, which is why 400 feet is the drone limit, so it gives you a 100-foot buffer. And he says, oh, no, no, if I, if I see one, I'll bring it down. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, yeah. please. Right. But, By the time you see it, it's going to be too late. Exactly. So, I don't know. What can you do? Uh, um, yes, uh, Hamish T. Haggis uh, says the FAA has something similar for U.S. airspace, an app called Before You Fly. So, I'll try to remember to put both of those um, app uh, links in the show notes. No promises, though. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Hamish. Yeah. And uh, Adam Spink says, yes, Drone Assist is a good app. That's the one you're talking about, I guess, that puts out. Yeah, that put I wish up the guy that had, uh, flew one into the approach path of Gatwick Airport the other day, twice in one day, closed the airport. They had lots of diversions uh, twice. Uh, I wish he had that app because I just slapped my forehead, you know, thinking about how You know, it's, I think it's one of those things where, you know, law-abiding uh, citizens <laughs> – usually are the most affected by these things. And they're the ones that really don't need this kind of, I mean, that's the problem. You know, the people, the yahoos are up there flying at a thousand feet. They're not going to use this stupid app. I mean, I'm sorry. It's not a stupid app. They're not going to use this app because they don't care. Yeah. They're stupid. (laughs) Not the app. They are not the app. Yeah. Oh boy. I agree. I don't know what to do. We can just keep pushing the word out there and hope our listeners will as well. There, there you have it. All right. Very good. So, uh, yes, I will put a link to this um, uh, report. Uh, it's a PDF. Nice, uh, nicely done um, in the show notes. Speaking of near misses or near hits, I guess uh, this I just saw pretty recently. This is from, let's see, what uh, publication? I want to make sure that I give proper credit. This is from abcnews.go.com. A jet passed within 10 minutes of where North Korean missile test landed, official says. Commercial airliner flew past the location where North Korea's recent intercontinental ballistic missile test would land in the Sea of Japan uh, less than 10 minutes later. So it went by and then 10 minutes later, the thing landed pretty close to where it had tracked over the Sea of Japan. Flight data from the time of the ICBM's landing on Friday indicates that the aircraft that was potentially in danger was Air France Flight 293 traveling from Tokyo to Paris. Uh, the plane's path shows the Boeing 777 traveling. W- oh, it's just a Boeing 777, so I guess no no loss there, right, Nick? No, <laughs> still in the buffs. <laughs> uh, traveling west of Hokkaido in, as the North Korean ICBM was airborne. And in a statement to the uh, to ABC News, Air France said North Korea's missile test zones don't interfere in any way with Air France's flight paths. 
and that the flight was operated without any reported incident. So they were kind of being on the defensive and saying it was no problem. Don't no, no need no nothing to see here. Move on. <laughs> but I'm not sure that uh, the North Korean government would really care that much about, you know, you know, making sure that it falls within the proper zone. Maybe they would. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think so. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought so. Anyway, a Pentagon spokesman, Captain Jeff Davis, said this missile flew through busy airspace used by commercial airliners. <laughs> so uh, it landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone and an area that's used by commercial and fishing vessels. All of this completely uncoordinated. So, yeah, it looks like maybe it could have been a problem, but um, fortunately not. Yeah, uh, it's um, it was uh, an interesting article. I read it, and but I was uh, a little bit amused at the photograph that was at the top of the actual article when I read it because it was a um, Airbus A three eighty. Close enough. It, did it say yeah, Air yeah. France on it? it? It's an airplane. It said Air France on it. Yes. Okay, it's well great. then you know you got to give them you know the benefit uh, of the doubt there. So we'll give them some points for actually you know having the correct air line in the picture that's true yeah. and it was a big airplane triple seven's a smaller target yeah that's true that that 380 i'm sure it would have hit because <laughs> yeah. it's such a big target <laughs> it takes 10 minutes to fly by <laughs> yeah almost just seems that way okay uh let's see i just saw this i think uh yeah today uh this is from the independent a fine uh news publication i'm sure uh let's see a teenage boy opened an emergency door after his plane landed, slid down the wing, and jumped onto the tarmac at San Francisco before shocked passengers could do anything to stop him, witnesses said. The 17-year-old, a U.S. citizen, removed the door minutes after the Copa Airlines flight arrived from Central America, San Francisco airport spokesman Doug Yackel said. An airport construction crew working nearby confronted the boy and held him until Police arrest, uh, arrived and arrested him. The teenager, who appeared to be in emotional distress during the flight, was not injured. Witnesses said that the boy seemed fidgety and anxious throughout the seven-hour flight from Panama City, Panama, and that by the time passengers realized that the door had been opened, he was already on the ground running. I think it was one of the overwing exits. Uh, Sophia yeah. Gibson of San Jose, California, and people sitting next to him were shocked when he jumped out of the plane and onto the wing. It was as, as if he was fly, flying out like it was really fast, Ms. Gibson told San Jose television station Key, uh, KNTV. Copa Airlines said in a statement that overwing emergency exits are designed to be opened by passengers after the plane reaches a lower altitude. To Well, yeah, like the ground. <laughs> It's <laughs> yes. kind of an interesting way to say that. <laughs> the slides aren't that long, mate. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're designed to be opened by passengers after the plane. And I'm going to do my editorial work here. It reaches the ground to allow for an evacuation in case of an emergency. But it is uh, a federal law violation to open them without having been instructed to do so by the crew. Uh, let's see, uh, the, the, uh, Matt Crowder of Atherton, California said people sitting near the exit row stood up when the boy jumped out and started to shout. They were yelling, tell the flight attendants, relay the message back. The doors open. Someone jumped off. The Panama based airline said in a brief statement that the plane then taxied to the gate where all the other passengers disembarked. 
Copa Airlines Flight 208 without incident. Passenger Isaac Rodriguez said a flight attendant used her body to block the gap where the door had been until the plane was at the gate. So anyway, interesting. You know, we hear about people's attempts to open doors in flight and this one uh, was on the ground. And guess what? On the ground, the uh, airplane is depressurized. So you can actually open up a door and jump out of the airplane. Not a good idea. We don't recommend it here at the APG. Uh, no, particularly since they're, I don't know what aircraft type it was. Do you know, Joe? I'm, I don't know if it said so in the uh, article, but I'm guessing it was a 737. Okay. But I mean, there's going to be engines running. Yeah. So if he, if he's an overwing and he jumps off the wing, he could jump directly into the exhaust blast and that would bowl him over and could cause him serious injury. Or he could jump off the front of the wing and disappear down the front of the engine, which is going to be uh, a very tragic ending. So it's yeah. an incredibly stupid thing to do. If anyone thinks of it, uh, it might be an amusing stunt, apart from being probably incredibly expensive in the way of being fined or perhaps even going to prison. Um, but, uh, yeah, absolutely remarkable. Can't believe it. And, uh, I'm a bit surprised that, um, I guess he was a 17 year old, but if he, if they thought he was agitated and behaving a bit fun, uh, strangely, um, wouldn't the needs to put an able-bodied person beside the emergency exits sort of give the crew a, a clue to shift him away and put someone else there? I don't know. Yeah. It seems like that would have been prudent, but perhaps they didn't think that he was that bad off yeah yeah you're right and who would be crazy enough to open up the overwing exit if you really weren't doing an emergency evacuation absolutely well this kid for one let's see i'm going to do a quick uh, search here copa airlines 208 let's see what kind of airplane that they uh, operate on that flight this is on flightaware.com free plug please send money Tracking, connecting, lightning speed, internet bandwidth here at the uh, studio in Chicago. Not. I had the uh, engineer around uh, yesterday looking at mine. Oh, did they find anything? No, no. You said it's uh, there's a problem at the, um, the the big box where all the connections are for oh. the entire area. Okay. Well, this thing is just as connecting and it's not going much COPA, further. I'm trying flight radar. Yeah. Flight. Copa 208. I'm a little disappointed in our chat room folks. I, I would have figured by now they would have said, you know, done the research for us and let us know what kind of airplane, but I, my guess is a 737. And I guess we're never going to know because I my uh, browser you know window still. Code is for Copa. Uh, yeah, it is. Well, I did when I did the uh, search for it. CMP, I think. CMP. Yeah. Two oh eight. No result. Hmm. All right. Well, whatever. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I I'm sure it was a. Uh, oh, found it. Okay. Panama City to San Fran. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it departed. Do you want to know what time it departed? <laughs> it's no. Seven thirty-seven dash eight. Okay. And Micah says seven thirty-seven seven hundred and eight hundreds. Okay. Very good. So yep, we uh, just as we suspected, uh, could have been a could have been a bad 
uh, outcome because, you know, going out on that wing when the engine is running is not a smart thing to do. I think it's interesting, though. It's uh, It would be a good um, lead into today's time, plain tale, but we'll just have to wait for that. Yeah, you're right. It would be. I have a feeling it has something to do with 737s and engines. And uh, evacuations. Yeah. Wow. Kismet. Okay. Um, oh, this is a good one. <laughs> I don't know if you had a chance to read this one from the the Sun. Dramatic moment. Hero pilot saved 127 people in risky landing. Oh, yeah, I did read this. A, and I watched the video. Too. A brave. This is an all caps. A brave pilot landed a passenger jet blind after giant hailstones smashed the cockpit's windscreen and almost tore off its nose cone. These incredible pictures show the plane at the pilot's heroic emergency landing at Istanbul's Atakirk Airport with 127 passengers on board. They show the severe external damage to the Airbus A320 from sudden unexpected hail during a thunderstorm. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yes, okay. And passengers crying and praying as the stricken plane comes to a shaky landing. I think uh, we're both thinking the same thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a voice a voice on the ground is heard saying, He won't do it. He won't do it. But <laughs> Captain Alexander Akapov said he and the other crew were celebrating as if it were a second birthday after his life saving heroics and coping with damage caused by hailstones the size of hen's eggs. Incredibly his uh, incredible here. Let me try this again. Incredibly, his autopilot was taken out in the damage. I've been flying for 30 years, he said. Well, did you see the plane landing? Was it OK? The passengers are alive. It is normal. This is our professional reliability. <laughs> OK, our locator, our locator. <laughs> this must be a translation. Our locator did not show this weather disaster. This is why it happened. It was hard. But the main thing is that people are alive. <laughs> the catastrophe hit some 10 minutes after taking off a Turkish airline Atlas Global flight to Erkan or Erkan, E-R-K-A-N, in northern Cyprus. Having climbed to 1,300 meters, the hailstones cracked the cockpit windows, preventing the pilot from seeing his runway approach. The captain was permitted to try and land at Ataturk Airport, even though it had been closed due to the atrocious weather. Full-scale emergency protocol was in place, with fire appliances and ambulances awaiting the plane. A video shows a woman with red nails. Why? We didn't have to know the color of her nails. I'm not sure. Gripping a seat because of the plane's extreme shaking during the landing. Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko called the captain to congratulate him and awarded him with the Ukrainian Order of Courage. Oh, boy. So aviation experts are also praising the two Turkish cabin crew for their bravery. Okay. So. Very brave. Yeah, very, very brave. Um, this reminds me, and I'm not saying that this is what happened here, but um, there was a story that I've, I've told on this show before uh, years and years ago when uh, it was um, Value Jet Airlines. In Atlanta, and it was a very, very bad day for weather in Atlanta. And there were, let's just say, it was very colorful on the radar. Um, you know, lots of red and yellow um, storms on the on the radar screen. And uh, 
the control tower was asking if anybody wanted to go and all of our Atlas flights were saying, uh, no, are you kidding me? I mean, it's like who would be crazy enough to fly in this? Then along comes the AirTran, not, I'm sorry, the um, value jet pilot said, yeah, well, we'll, we can go, we can take a takeoff. And we were just like, what? (laughs) He's really going to fly in this? Takes off, heads to the north, flies right into the red, super attenuating stuff on the radar. And that wasn't long after that, that uh, there was an emergency aircraft coming back to Atlanta with its windscreen completely pummeled by hail. And uh, they landed. And of course, the pilot was Harold, you know, was just lauded as a hero, just as this pilot was. Or And uh, then it wasn't long after that uh, the FAA started looking into it and decided yeah. that he was not a hero. <laughs> it was an idiot. <laughs> Basically risked the lives of passengers. I believe that guy's license was suspended and I don't know if he ever got it back. Um because he he endangered the passengers. He there was he had no business flying in that stuff. But again, I'm not saying that that's what happened here, but I I have my suspicions. Yeah, it would be a bit late to take away the Ukrainian order of courage. <laughs> um but uh to be fair, uh, the only person I've ever seen fly through a, a thunderstorm was a Turkish A340. And we were two in a row. So we, it was Turkish ahead of us getting everyone out of Johannesburg. And we were getting everyone to, on the sort of uh, southerly pointing runway. So we both had to do a right hand, more or less a 180 on the departure uh, to get heading north back up uh, towards uh, you know Europe. And... Um, we watched him get on. We'd already had a bit of a contretemps with him because he hadn't got any nav lights and it was dark. And I think it's a legal requirement to yeah. have navigation lights on an aircraft flying in the night. Yes. So we said to him, uh, oh, Turkish, you forgot to turn your nav lights on. And there was obviously no no answer. And uh, <laughs> we said to the tower, um, Johannesburg, uh, Turkish doesn't have his nav lights on. So they said, Turkish, you need to turn your nav lights on. And he said, Roger. And that's all he said. No, no, it's appeared. <laughs> and he got airborne. Anyway, we were airborne directly behind him as we turned around the corner and our radar started painting the uh, uh, the part, second part of the SID after the turn. We saw this huge thunderstorm sitting there right in the middle of the departure lane. So we basically said, right, well, we're not going to turn north. We're going to roll out here and head six degrees left. But we watched his TCAS symbol go right through the middle of this thunderstorm. And I thought, oh my well, gosh. perhaps his nav lights aren't the only thing that's not working. <laughs> <laughs> but miraculously, he came out the other side again. So there you go. There you go. And that just supports the fact that you don't have to go around these thunderstorms. Oh, absolutely. You can just plow through them. Right through them and there's not a problem. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, I don't know if we'll, we'll hear anything else about this or if there's going to be any kind of an investigation if we do hear about it, we'll certainly report it here. But uh, I just think that those passengers should maybe think twice about whether they should heap a lot of praise on this guy and this crew. Right, we'll see. Yeah. Because, you know, these these kind of storms that have this kind of hail don't just come like appear just out of nowhere. You know, that I'm sure that it was on the radar. Perhaps they weren't well, using it. I mean, the hail would be, if it's the size of a hailstone, there'd be big hailstones done yeah. a lot of damage. 
I mean, the, the size of a thunderstorm that's going to support that kind of weight of uh, precipitation is going to be pretty intense. And uh, the thing is that the radar bounces off the radar, so the physical things inside a thunderstorm. And with hailstones that big going up and down, the radar would have been pinging like nobody's business. Yeah. I mean, it should have been sitting there, a huge red, do not go here, blob. Oh, you know, it's possible. I don't know what the radar is like in uh, the Airbus. Uh, I would imagine they probably have different, you know, different manufacturers and different models and that kind of thing. But it is possible on uh, our our radar to um, adjust. You know, normally the gain is on auto, but it's possible to lower the gain all the way down. And it almost looks, if you glance at the switch, it almost looks like it's an auto, but it's actually at the, the complete minimum setting. If you have the gain all the way down to minimum or you don't have the angle of the radar uh, screen or not radar screen, but radar antenna uh, in the right place, you, it's possible to miss even a huge thunderstorm like that. Yeah, I guess so. Our SOP is to set it to five degrees up so that we make sure we you know, look into our climb path. Mm-hmm. And we do get an airborne in auto. But you're right. I personally think it's a bit of a design a glitch. They should have auto beside maximum not auto beside minimum so that you take away the possibility of accident leaving it in minimum. I was, I was flying at night uh, heading into JFK from Atlanta and I was just like looking at the radar and I'm thinking, and we were IMC and I was just looking at all this red and I'm going, wow, I'm, I'm surprised I'm not hearing anybody talk about the severe weather or I don't hear anybody asking for deviations. And I'm going, what in the world is going on here? And I was like starting to almost freak out. And then I, leaned down and made sure that it was an auto and it was all, it was all the way to the max setting. And so when I turned it back to auto, it went, Oh, okay. All of it disappeared. It was some green stuff, but it wasn't, (laughs) I was really, at least you alerted, it alerted you to it. I mean, the other fault we have on our aircraft is that you've got two brightness displays on the navigation side. One controls just the screen and the symbols and the other controls the, uh, radar, which is uh, underlaid, as it were, appears behind them. And uh, that's a little collar behind the main collar. And it is, uh, it really annoys me that people, when they turn the screen off, they turn both these knobs to the left because you don't need to. You only need to turn one off. Right. Uh, and you should leave the other one cranked to max because uh, sometimes when you turn them on, you swing one and you don't swing the other one. And uh, you've got the radar on but it's actually brightness is so low that you can't see it on your screen. Uh, and it, a few people have fallen foul of that. Mm-hmm. Got everyone on a nice day and they're tootling along and they don't even realize that they can't see their radar is given because brightness is turned low. Man. Yeah, that's not good. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of pitfalls out there, but um, anywho. Just got to be aware of them. Got to be aware. Got to be aware. All right. Well, I think that does it for our news segment tonight. Now it's time for us to tackle your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Oh, and I just realized that I only have three items in the feedback folder. <laughs> That's okay. We can go to the regular feedback folder um, in a in a bit and and actually have a normal amount of feedback for the show. <laughs> so ah, I knew there was one more thing to do. Okay. Let's start with some feedback from Rebecca and she just put proposal pilot style and then sent a link to 
a facebook.com post and let's take a listen looks like it's a video on facebook and i'm going to hit the play button and you can, we can all listen together i'm not getting into response to the controls here okay next one next one we might have to land in the field i'm not even getting you inside of an airplane this girl is praying right now she has her hand on her chest she has her eyes closed can you grab the checklist from the side um, can you start from the top please okay he wants her to read a checklist the next emerge. one over page two verify flight ring is engaged got it initiate ring engagement process follow steps 11 to 14 okay go for it okay got it Oh, we're getting some response. You're lying. What's going on? Go on, please. I hate you. Hun? <laughs> can you please tell me, can you keep reading through the steps, hun? Will the pilot in command love the passenger forever? Check. He's bringing a, a box, a red box, out with uh, an engagement ring. Such an idiot. <laughs> Is that a yes? I don't think he will, since uh, usually you only propose marriage once to <laughs> yeah, the same yes. girl. <laughs> I, I found that quite amusing too. So yeah, you really have to watch the video. It's you know it's a, a, mount, a camera mounted on the dash, and uh, it's, yeah, her uh, reaction is quite uh, impressive, isn't it? Right, it is. It is. So uh, and he, she really looks uh, <laughs> you know, pretty terrified when he she tells was. her that they're going to do an emergency landing, and she's got to grab the emergency checklist and read it to him. Yeah, yeah. very very cute. So uh, thank you, for, for Rebecca, for sending us that. I know it was a while ago. It was in June when she sent that piece of feedback to us. But we got to it eventually. Um, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can uh, all look at that as well. And uh, it's just as Captain Nick says, her her reaction, especially her nonverbal, you know, her facial uh, expressions, everything else. It's uh, it's pretty, uh, pretty funny. OK, uh, moving on, Peter. Uh, sent in some feedback, Peter Koffel. Uh, greetings, Captain Jeff. My name is Peter Koffel from Clarkston, Michigan. I've been listening to your podcast online for a few years now. I just now downloaded your app from Google Play. Your podcast is very interesting, and I've been an aviation enthusiast since early childhood. Keep up the good work and happy flying. So, and the reason why I wanted to mention that is because uh, that's a good time to mention the fact that we do have. Uh, apps for your smartphone, whether it be an Apple uh, product, an iOS device, or an Android device, you can find the app for free on the um, App Store, and you can get a push notification if I remember to send one out um, when we're recording the show and when the show has been released, and uh, you can listen to the podcast, the audio podcast right there on the app if you want. Also, you can watch the YouTube video uh, through the app as well, so... Lots of other stuff oh, on there. It's a great app. And while you're in iTunes looking for it, how about popping across and leaving us a little review? That would be kind of cool. Because yeah. the more reviews we get, the more listeners we're going to get. 
Absolutely. And uh, and thanks to you, our listeners, uh, our show is consistently uh, one of the top rated uh, aviation podcasts out there in the, uh, you know, what's hot category and news, new and noteworthy and all that kind of stuff. We're not new, but apparently we're noteworthy. So and that's thanks to those of you who are uh, subscribed via iTunes and uh, those of you really uh, leaving reviews. Yeah, so many thanks. Do appreciate that. Uh, Louisiana Steve was at Oshkosh, got the chance to uh, meet him for the first time. He sent us some feedback on the 3rd of July, and he says, uh, Good morning, APG crew. As if uh, airport security wasn't a PITA, pain in the arse already, people pulling tricks like this will make it even worse. I'm not sure what this guy was planning to do once he had possession of the helicopter. I assume he planned to fly somewhere until he jumped in and realized it was a lot more complicated than his video games. And then he sends us a link to this article from CNN, um, apparently uh, outside of uh, Portland, Oregon, Hillsboro Airport. Um, a man climbed over a fence and approached a helicopter with the engine running. And uh, the police say the incident was not believed to be an act of terrorism. And uh, let's see, police Lieutenant Henry Ryman said the armed man climbed a fence at the local airport, approached the helicopter in the hangar owned by Hillsborough Aero Academy about 11.30 a.m. local time. An Academy employee was showing his girlfriend the helicopter, which had the engine switched on. I guess what they mean is the engine was running. The suspect fired into the air and ordered the two out before climbing into the helicopter. Three other Academy employees then pointed weapons at the suspect. (laughs) (laughs) All these guys working in the hangar, they're all packing. I know that. I was surprised when I read that (laughs) sentence. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. What's this place like? Yeah. Is it out in the Wild West? Well, it's it's in the Pacific Northwest. I really that kind of surprises me that so and not only just one employee employees. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so don't be messing around with these people. No, no, they're serious people. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this the suspect uh, ran away from the aircraft, and then the uh, police and the suspect uh, exchanged gunfire as he jumped a fence and ran into a field, and then another Hillsborough officer fatally shot the man in the field near the airport. Uh, so uh, got a little audio clip of a witness uh, just before this guy jumped the fence and went over to the helicopter to uh, try to hijack it or whatever. Um, this man was there with his, um, family at the airport. I think they were doing some plane spotting and, uh, let's take a listen here. The suspect there came from across the street onto the sidewalk. And as he was coming by, he had on a gray hoodie. Uh, and I thought for a minute, you know, it's kind of hot to have this hoodie on and hands in his pockets. As he goes by us, he looks directly at me. Uh, and then turns, and as soon as he turns, he pulls the gray mask over his face. Yeah, so exciting stuff. And as you said, you know, thankfully, um, the guy didn't, you know, do something bad to him or his uh, family. Oh, uh, yeah, talking of bad, we could have had the bad boys bit. Oh, yeah, darn it. Darn. Oh, well. 
That's another app. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, I should have played that. I should have started with that, shouldn't have I? Ah, oh, damn. It would oh, well. be so good. If oh, only well. we could do that in post. Yeah, well, I could maybe slam that in there, throw, kind of squeeze that in. Uh, so if you're listening to this on the audio podcast right now, you're going to go, well, you did have it playing, Jeff. Yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, not much else to talk about there. I guess the guy thought he was going to be able to just get into a helicopter and fly it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not a, not a good idea. Uh, Mike quickly moving on here. Hey all, this is mostly to Jeff and Dana. You guys often mention that the new stars into Atlanta don't work well and were very costly to come up with. Were they created to increase fuel efficiency and reduce travel time? Uh, yes and yes. That was the goal, I guess. Often when I look at flight radar, I see aircraft making very long, wide S-turn type maneuvers or strangely random looking 75 to 90 degree turns, especially coming from the northeast quadrant. Coming from the west, even slightly north of the 270 radial from Atlanta, I see aircraft flying southeast uh, only to have to travel north to arrive at the airport. Is this all uh, a byproduct of the so-called new and improved routings, or is there more to it than just that? Were the SIDs actually more efficient before the, I think he means the stars, uh, more efficient before the changes? Lastly, have you experienced anything similar at other airports that have their procedures revamped? Uh, so in answer to that, I, I don't think it specifically has anything to do with these new star procedures. The, the tracks that are on these new arrival procedures are essentially the same tracks that we've been flying for 25, 30 years or more. Um, it's the, the, all the altitude blocks and speed assignments and everything else that are that kind of get my goat. Um, I, I like the uh, old fashioned way of the guys just saying, you know, descend to this altitude and slow to the speed and kind of, you know, manage and control us because they are controllers and that way they can more effectively and more efficiently, uh, control traffic uh, coming into the airport um, because that's essentially what happens anyway. Even if, if we're on one of these new uh, standard instrument arrival procedures, they end up having to do the same thing like they used to do before we had these newfangled stars in the past. Uh, but uh, land is one of those places where you have a lot of weather, uh, especially this time of year, thunderstorms and that kind of thing. And just you just can't fly the tracks uh, that are published and uh, the patterns that you're seeing on flight radar, flight aware, all those other uh, plane tracking apps um, are typical patterns uh, for coming in and aligning ourselves with the runways and that kind of thing. So, um, so I would say now that what you were seeing there has nothing to do with the new stars. And uh, again, pretty much the same track as always. It's just the, uh, Requiring the pilots to be their own controllers. That's the thing I have a beef about. But anyway. You think in the, uh, well, you think this is really being aimed uh, at the future when they will use the fact that the pilots are doing their own self-controlled approaches to cut down on the number of, oh, you're nodding. <laughs> the podcast yes. people can't see you. But <laughs> I really do. Seriously nodding, thinking <laughs> that uh, this is really going to be a cost-cutting exercise to cut down on the number of controllers. Uh, and I have to agree. Yeah. I think so. I, you know, a lot of, and I, I don't, I, I don't know if uh, the controllers out there suspect that or not, but uh, I would be suspicious. Uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist 
but it's just interesting how they're shifting responsibilities uh, so much on the pilots. And then, so that, I think that's step one, you know, to get rid of a lot of the controllers because, Hey, we're doing everything on our own anyway. And then number two, now that that's all, that's all set and we have all this high automation. Now we're, we're set for removing pilots from the, uh, from the airplane. And uh, again, I just don't see that happening successfully. But then we'll have remote air traffic control cameras and everything be done from a central uh, mm-hmm. visual control simulation base, a bit like, uh, you know, a bunch of guys flying drones over Afghanistan. It'll be a bunch of controllers in porter cabins working the visual control of every airfield. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I, no. think, I think the airline execs would love to see something like that because uh, as far as um, labor costs are concerned, you know, we pilots are at the top end of that scale and yeah. they would yeah. love to get rid of that <laughs> if they could. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as you know, listening to the show, uh, if, if you've listened to it in the past, you know that I just don't see it happening. You know, they, they can dream, but you ain't going to take the pilot out of these airplanes, especially with passengers on board. Yeah. Um, it's just too many. Uh, so yeah, just to kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. So people ask, well, doesn't it, you know, isn't your job kind of boring and you're flying the same routes over and over and over again? And I said, well, yeah, but every time we do it, it's a different flight because of the changing dynamics of the flight, you know, mostly weather related stuff, but it could be mechanical issues. It could be all kinds of different things that change that same flight that you fly from Atlanta to Baltimore and Baltimore to Atlanta. Well, you know what? You do it two days later. It's going to be a different flight, even though it's the same track and the same altitudes and everything else. It's a different flight. Flight because this is a dynamic world we live in, and I'm not sure that automation is is set up to handle it. Certainly not. People think of the atmosphere as being something reasonably benign, but it is not. It, mm-hmm. it can be incredibly violent, and uh, I wouldn't like to be up there facing bad weather. And allows the uh, uh, airport with uh, you know no pilot on board to uh, to keep an eye on what the hell's going on. Right. Exactly. Hey, look at this. We have some feedback, some audio feedback from somebody we haven't heard from in a while. So I'm just going to push this button, and we're all going to enjoy this. I think. Hello, aviation weirdos. Mrs. Nev here. Well, it has been some time since my last blog, Christmas, in fact but the time has come for the next one. Last time, I managed to get into Nev's studio when he wasn't around. Unfortunately, he wasn't too impressed, and I have now been banned. So here I am, sitting in the downstairs loo, recording on my phone instead. Needs must when the devil drives, eh? As Nev may have told you, I am not a fan of flying. It's not that I'm scared the plane will crash, although there is always the possibility. It's just the sensation of flying that I'm most uncomfortable with. Too much like amusement parks for my liking. I have seen the bottom of too many sick bags over the years, so much so that I have to take travel sickness tablets beforehand whilst I am sinking a vodka and Diet Coke in the British Airways lounge. Anyway, once on the plane, I quietly sit with my seatbelt fastened, waiting for the other inconsiderate passengers struggle with their huge luggage, trying to get it in the overhead compartment. Have they never heard of checking it in? I think the cabin crew must have the patience of a saint to deal with some of the passengers. It's certainly a job I couldn't do. 
Sitting here in the loo reminds me that toilets on a plane are quite something. I'm not exactly a large person and I struggle with the cramped space. Once, whilst trying to seat myself on the loo, we hit a bit of turbulence and I ended up headbutting the door. And what's this all mile-high club? It's bad enough with just one person in there, but two doing heaven knows what? Not my idea of fun. However, when we travel business class, sorry, I'm a bit of a snob, I do like the little things that make my flight that bit more enjoyable. Not just the hot, wet flannel, and that's not Nev I'm talking about, but the food. Real cutlery and proper napkins. When we flew out to Croatia a couple of months ago, we got a tray with some lovely smoked duck and salad, along with cheese and biscuits and a gooey dessert. Not bad, I thought, for lunch until the cabin crew came round afterwards with hot smoked salmon and pasta and announced that this was the main course. I had already eaten what turned out to be the starter and the pud. Oops. <laughs> anyway, finally, my main niggle is when there are children in business class. I do think it should be for adults only, especially when the flights are qu quite a bit more expensive and you're paying for peace and quiet, and then you get some fractious child bawling their head off or kicking the back of your seat with the parents oblivious to what's going on. Is there no consideration for other passengers? Either have a child-friendly section, well away from business class, or put them in the hold. Uh-oh, someone is trying the door handle. I've been found out. Coming! Bye for now. This loose seat is a bit uncomfortable anyway, and my phone battery is low. Until the next time. <laughs> now, was that you trying to break into the bathroom? How rude. No, that, was, that was great. We love you. <laughs> we love you, Mrs. Nev. Brilliant. Good job. That was great. Too late, Nev. He said, Jeff, turn it off. <laughs> she doesn't know what she's talking about. Uh, that's great. Always good to hear from Mrs. Nev. She's, she's pretty good with that audio equipment, considering she yeah. was in the loo. Yeah. yeah, she had the reverb and everything all set up. It was nice. It's oh, good. Very professional. <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. That's great. Always, always, uh, Always a treat to hear from uh, Mrs. Nev. Okay, let's see. Let's continue on. Uh, Miami Hicks sent in some feedback um, about a month ago, a little bit less, uh, in regards to the commute to work being considered on duty or not. Okay, that was when we were talking about the uh, Colgan 5407-45. I've already forgotten the number now. Anyway, the... Uh, the, uh, the the crash in Buffalo that uh, spurred this you know high uh, hourly requirement and and that kind of thing um, and we were talking about commuting and whether or not that should be considered on duty time or not he said uh, he wanted to put his two cents in as a truck driver the Walmart truck that crashed into a limousine van carrying Tracy Morgan and several other comedians that resulted in serious injuries for Tracy and killing another comedian was caused by the truck driver falling asleep and not seeing the stop traffic in front of him. I later learned this driver learned in George, lived in Georgia, but the terminal where the truck leaves from was in Virginia. He drove nine hours from Georgia to Virginia in his personal car and then climbed into the tractor trailer and started his day. So by the time he crashed, he had been awake for about 25 hours. I believe if a commute is longer than two hours, it should count as on duty Miami Hick over and out you know a lot of people would uh, agree with that Miami absolutely Hick, except for the commuters <laughs> they, they would yeah, not agree I think he has he also rules that you shouldn't commute for more than an hour and a 
quarter, hour and a half, somewhere around there, uh-huh. before commencing duty. Uh, or if you do, you should uh, take a rest period before you start. Yeah, I think it just makes sense. Again, you know, uh, I, I think I'm going to get some pushback from people who who uh, routinely, you know, commute uh, for whatever reason, you know, for for lifestyle, for convenience, because family is located here and your your job, your domicile is located somewhere else. And, you know, there are those are all, you know, good reasons to commute. It's just that uh, I think that you have to really think about safety as well. And if if you're going to have a long commute before you start your duty day, then perhaps you just got to sacrifice and get there the previous day so that you can get a good night's sleep and be prepared for the flying. But yeah, yeah. I'm afraid safety comes ahead of lifestyle. Yep. I agree. And for all those out there that are throwing tomatoes at me, take your best shot. Yeah. I will make some tomato soup or chutney out of it. There you go. Making lemonade out of lemons, right? Uh, or whatever. Uh, uh, this is from Adam Reese. Hey, APG crew. First time submitting feedback after getting your app after uh, found you all on iTunes. I instantly caught the APG syndrome. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case. APG syndrome. No pills gonna kill my ear. I got a bad case. APG syndrome. And he says he finds himself listening to the podcast more than I care to admit. I myself am a private pilot and I volunteer with the Civil Air Patrol flying a Gippsland or Gippsland. I'm not even sure how you pronounce that. G-I-P-P-S-L-A-N-D-G-A-8 air van out of Texas. I would uh, say Gippsland. Gippsland. That's what I, okay. I think that's probably the way to go with that. I know everyone knows about Air Venture, but not everyone can go this year, like myself. But there will be a lot of Civil Air Patrol members out there, mainly our cadets, working the flight line and even chasing down ELTs that go off during the show. Three of my cadets are up there this year. Two of them are veterans of the show, and one of them is having his first experience. We call the event National Blue Beret, and members fly in from all over the country to experience and work Air Venture. I'm sure a lot of people attending the show will see them, and if you do, be sure to introduce yourself or give them a pat on the back, as they are doing all the work voluntarily and, in fact, pay to attend the event and for their own airfare. Our members will be wearing military-style uniforms with safety vests and blue berets with the St. Albans Cross on the front. These cadets go on to pursue careers in aviation and work hard on the program are in the program to help better themselves for the future. So some even go on to military academies to fly for our military. Just wanted to give my guys and gals a nice shout out to our aviation community and APG listeners. Anyway, thanks for reading. Look forward to the next podcast. And Adam sent this in before Air Venture. Sorry, I'm now just getting to it. Um, you know, I did. There was a, a nice young man who introduced himself to me when we were in Boeing Plaza, or what was it called? Boeing Plaza, I think. Um, was wearing a blue outfit, and I think he was wearing a blue beret. I, I thought he was um, a volunteer for the EA. Well, maybe maybe he was uh, with a different outfit. I think he, he had a shirt on or something that said EAA Radio. But maybe he was one of these uh, cadets that I met uh, I don't know. Did he have a yellow cross on a blue field? I don't remember that much. You know, well, that's I, just an Albans cross. Yeah, I I don't. After, I didn't pay that close attention to everything. I didn't want to stare at everything that he was wearing. But uh, 
I, you know, I, St. Alban, the first British Christian martyr. Oh, how about that? So, no, I, I'm assuming that this person I was talking to was probably one of these cadets. So I, I've, I'm sorry, I forget your name. I think it was Kevin or something like that. Keith, Kevin, something like that. But anyway, it was nice meeting you. And uh, Adam, thanks for sending this in. And I'm sure that many of our uh, APG folks there at Air Venture um, ended up, you know, running into some of these guys. Hope they didn't hurt them too much. But and I hope a lot of these guys are the next generation of airline pilots. That Me we're too. Going to see Jeff because that's what we need. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, Ross. Poor Ross was asking advice about traveling, and then he asked for advice on chocolates and. Cargo yes. compartments. A bit late with it, that advice. Yeah, I've been very, very bad with uh, answering these in a timely manner. Uh, but he says, hi, Team APG. Thanks for reading this feedback on the show uh, re- recently. I thought I would follow up and let you know how it turned out. So to answer one of your questions on the show, I booked the tickets through one of the many online ticketing agents out there. It wasn't with the airline directly, although I haven't booked with an airline directly for many years now. And had never come across this reservation fee requirement for adjacent seats on anything other than a budget airline. So shortly after sending you the feedback below, I was also told by an acquaintance that this in his recent experience traveling with children, the airlines were very supportive of families sitting together on long haul flights. So as very few seats seemed to be reserved when I looked on the Acme Red website, I thought I would head to the airport early and see whether they could seat us together. That seemed to be a good decision, as there seemed to be an abs- there seemed to be absolutely no question of us being split up when speaking to the check-in agents. They were very friendly and immediately identified seats for us together without me even asking. On the return journey, the same thing happened, and as the plane was quiet, they gave us a whole row so that my daughter could sleep. All in all, I avoided quite a large reservation fee and was able to spend that money on a nice evening meal for our family. One thing I thought worth mentioning that I learned in this process is that families traveling with children can also take car seats with them at no extra cost and also not at the expense of other luggage, something which can save some money over a long-term car rental. Thanks for picking this up on the show. The suggestions and feedback were very helpful. Again, that's Ross in England and uh, kudos to Acme Red. Apparently they uh, they, they did a, a smashing bang-up job there with the uh, Ross and his family in their travel. I will make sure I let Acme Red know. Thank Good. you very much. I wouldn't have expected anything less. <laughs> from you obviously haven't been to one of the parties I go to, Jeff. Whether <laughs> you say, what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm an airline. Where do you fly for, Acme Red? And the first thing you get is a horror story. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> That's always yeah, I know. Everyone's don't, got one horror story. Don't you just love good. that? That's one of my pet peeves. People, you know, they find out you fly for... Brand X. Then all of a sudden, here goes all the terrible experiences they yep. had with it. Yep. And I'm yep. thinking to myself, did, did I have anything to do with that? <laughs> no. Right. And then I come to this party to listen to you to whinge. <laughs> I mean, that's like, you know, uh, my next door neighbor, he worked for IBM and they've moved away since. But that's like me going over there and going, you know, I have one of your stupid PCs. And that just, or, you know, and just start complaining about and knowing full well that he has nothing to do with personal computers. He works for some other division at IBM. But even if he did work for the PC division, it's like it's, he's not responsible for that problem. What's yep. wrong with these people? Right. 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 Oh, well. Um, 
So uh, speaking of Ross in England, he also sent in something that he thought we would get a kick out of. And uh, it's a it's a video. We're just going to listen to the audio portion of it. And uh, but it, it was I, I thought it was worth playing for everyone, as Ross did as well. So let's take a listen. This is your captain speaking. We're going to skip all the pre-flight checks and proceed with takeoff. I've given the tires a kick and I think we've got enough fuel to get there. And the oil warning light hasn't come on yet, so buckle up and enjoy the flight. We're going. You Everybody's getting out there. The proper checks. So why drive without them? Always check your tires, fuel, and oil. Good advice. So I guess this is from Highways England. And I, I guess they put out a lot of entertaining uh, ads. It's a nice public safety ad. <laughs> yeah, it is. And we used to get a lot of those when I was a kid. And they're very rare nowadays. Hmm. Well, it costs a lot of money, I guess. Maybe they don't. Is it like a nonprofit or something? Or is it part of the government? Oh, yeah, it's a kind of a government. Thing. Okay. Um, was it just me or it sounded to me like Captain Al uh, making that PA right at the beginning? I don't know. Could you hear him? <laughs> You're going to get his lawyers are going to send us another letter. Be careful. <laughs> another letter from Fluff. <laughs> no. But listen, listen to this at the very beginning. This is your captain speaking. We're going to skip all the pre-flight checks and proceed with takeoff. That sounds to it me is, so it, much it like is. his accent. Absolutely. It, him or his brother. <laughs> Oh boy, that figures. Al's been moonlighting again. <laughs> okay, um, so that was funny. Thank you, uh, Ross, for sending that in, giving us a tickle. Um, Jonathan writes, "Hi, Captain Jeff. I submitted feedback with a question before on web page and received no answer before, so I figured I would give it a try here." Hmm. I don't know why. If you had used the feedback. Uh, form on the website. We should have received your feedback, Jonathan, but I don't remember ever getting it. So if you'd like, leave a comment or something like that on a post, then yeah, I'm never going to see that. Uh, so you found the best way to get our attention. Uh, send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com or use uh, one of the uh, smartphone apps. And then it goes directly into our feedback folder on my Evernote program. Okay. So I've started listening to your show recently and have gotten to episode 40, so I'm still living in your past. So I apologize if this has been answered before. I've had the desire to learn to fly my whole life, but after failing previous or previous attempts or precious attempts, maybe previous, I thought this time I would be able to, to for sure. I did all the research for what was needed and finally decided on ATP school in Tampa, St. Petersburg airport for my education. I'm 36 years old now. And although not too late to start my window, although not too late to start, my window is closing for my dream of being an airline pilot. Then after all the research was done, I tried to get the financing and hit a brick wall again, despite having excellent credit over 800 credit score, never having any late payments having lots of credit history and having a general manager job at Domino's Pizza for over 16 years, I got denied. They said I needed a co-signer. So I've submitted four co-signers that were also uh, denied also. None of them have the quality of credit that I do or income that I do, but I tried everyone that I could think of. Although the program says it guarantees an instructor job and I'm aware that it's not guaranteed, I still have a strong work history to fall back on to be able to get rehired to pay the debt. 
after getting the hours flight instructing the regionals have a excuse me, commas would be helpful here uh, after getting the hours flight instructing the regionals have a tuition reimbursement assistance program for the duration of flight instructor job and a full year after you get your 1500 hours to make sure you will be able to pay the debt any advice would be greatly appreciated or information on how I could get the loan with my situation because I believed my own benefits should have been enough to get the loan approved on my own. I am I am, and always have been a very hard worker. I'm not scared of the amount of work I would have to put into achieving this dream. Whether I am able to get any information from you or anyone on your great uh, link of helpful individuals on your network, I would like you to know that your show is a great tool and your insight is always appreciated on my long drives to and from work daily. I will continue to listen through the vast amount of episodes you've put together. Thank you for your time. And again, that's Jonathan Drucker. So um, I, I have no idea, Captain Nick, why somebody that has a you know really, really strong credit uh, rating uh, had trouble being approved for a loan. I'm not sure what's going on there. Neither do I, uh, because uh, that's the, you know, that's the benchmark that people use to judge whether they're going to, did you have uh, money? And uh, if you've got a good credit rating, I don't understand it. I, I wonder whether you had tried uh, a, a different bank. Uh, I'm, I'm not very familiar with the American uh, finance system, quite honestly. And I don't know whether there's an equivalent of a student loan, which is something you get in the UK that is available either uh, a, hmm. a government um, funded loan. I don't know. Is there something similar to that in the States, Jeff? I, I, I we do have student loans and, and government backed funding, but I'm not sure if a, a, an aviation school and like going to one like ATP would qualify for that kind of um, loan, but I, maybe, I don't know for sure. I'm sure a lot of people out there listening know the answer to this. And if you do, if you don't mind, send us some feedback and, and maybe help. Yeah us yeah. point Jonathan in the right direction. Also, Jonathan, um, if you're listening, uh, you can check out Carl Valeri's um, Aviation Careers podcast. And I think his website has a lot of information about uh, scholarships and, and perhaps some uh, sources or resources for, um, you know, funding your training and that kind of thing. I would imagine uh, that he would be a uh, a really good person to ask about this. But as far as the financial stuff and why you weren't approved, I have no idea. I mean, to me, just on the face of it, it looks like you have everything necessary with your good credit and, you know, good income to support a big loan. But I don't know. We've got plenty of listeners from all sorts of backgrounds. And mm -hmm. whilst uh, I, I don't know much about uh, the American system, one of those will. And I'm trusting that they will come to the aid of a, a fellow APG listener and perhaps send us some feedback offering some advice for Jonathan. That would be great. Really appreciated. It certainly would. You know, um, I, several people have mentioned uh, suffering. You know, Jennifer, Jen Niffer is one of those who um, – it sounded like she was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting when she said that she suffered from APG syndrome. And uh, we, we heard from others that uh, suffer from this uh, malady as well. Well, you know what? Good news. Why, hello there. My name is Miami Hick, and I'm here to talk to you today about an embarrassing subject that no one likes to talk about, APG syndrome. Do you have a constant pain in your neck from always looking up at airplanes? Have you tried to grow your own Captain Jeff mustache? Do you think of Miami Rick every time you hear a cricket? Think of Captain Nick when you hear a frog croak. Oh. Think of Dana whenever you eat Boston baked beans. 
do you think of Dr. Steph whenever you get stuck with a needle? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you are suffering from APG syndrome. We'll suffer no more. Introducing Go Around the Cillin. With only 36 daily doses of an easy to swallow pill, you can be free of your symptoms with Go Around the Cillin. Talk to your doctor today and find out if Go Around the Cillin is right for you. Like all medicine, Go Around Cillin has side effects which include headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach bleeding, bleeding from the ears, nose, and eyes, uncontrolled diarrhea, stomach cramps, yellowing of the teeth, hair, and toenails, warts, hair loss, dry mouth, constipation, and stomach cramps. <laughs> very, very good. Another classic. Go around a cillin. <laughs> oh, excellent. And of course, every time you think of uh, go around, of, you know, we, we think of this little ditty uh, here. You can always go around a cillin. If it don't look right, <laughs> coming down. Don't wait until your socks be sliding on the ground. You can always go around um yeah so uh very very uh, uh we're gonna have to keep that um that commercial in here for uh future uh episodes or uh ab um what's the word well, it'd be for? nice to take it on the end because he's getting quite a little quite a little session of miami hick at the end of the apg podcast so i enjoy <laughs> listening to that yeah very well done thank you miami hick for sending that in um so yeah there is hope we now have a cure go around a cillin yeah well, those side effects sound just a little bit worrying <laughs> don't you love that <laughs> bleeding from from eyes nose and ears <laughs> uncontrolled yeah, bleeding teeth yeah, falling out diarrhea stomach oh. cramps <laughs> yeah oh boy it might be better just to stick with the syndrome personally yeah, i think so i think so okay um you know what I think now would be a great time for this week's installment of the old pilot's plain tales, the tongue twister. The old pilot's plain tales, the number nine combustor. For airline passengers and crew alike, a fire in the cabin must be amongst the most terrifying of incidents. Over the decades, the industry has improved passenger protection and crew training, but there is only so much that can be done. In August 1985, there was a milestone accident that was to be a defining moment in the history of civil aviation. It involved a Boeing 737-200 series operated by British Air Tours, which was departing Manchester International Airport in the UK, bound for the Greek islands. Captain Peter Terrington and First Officer Brian Love, both experienced pilots, lined up their aircraft on runway 24 for takeoff. Behind them in the cabin were four cabin crew and 131 passengers, all keen to start their holiday flight. Unknown to the pilots five years previously, the number nine combustor can in their left-hand Pratt & Whitney JT-8D had suffered cracks. The ring of cans contained the burning fuel as it is fired to create the heat and pressure required to power the engine. The cracks had been repaired by fusion welding but had not received the required solution heat treatment. 
the Air Accident Investigation Board were unable to confirm if this had been a major factor in the can's failure. But as the pilot supplied power and started to accelerate down the runway, this was the can that was about to blow. At around 120 knots, a loud thump was heard coming from under the aircraft, and thinking a tyre might have burst, the captain shouted, Stop! ordering the takeoff to be abandoned. First Officer Love applied hard braking, which was moderated after Captain Terrington expressed his concern about a damaged tyre. Nine seconds after aborting, the cockpit fire warning sounded, and the tower confirmed that, Ayrtours, there is a lot of fire. About 20 seconds before the aircraft stopped, the tower controller also suggested evacuating the passengers on the starboard side. Hearing the bang and seeing the smoke, the fire service had already initiated a response. As the aircraft slowed, it came abeam a short taxiway, Link Delta, and the pilots turned off the runway, coming to a halt facing northwest. The wind was 250 at seven knots. When the number nine combustor had ruptured, a section of the cam was ejected forcibly into an underwing tank access panel, which fractured, allowing fuel to spill into the hot engine gases and spray forwards as the reverses were deployed. The fuel ignited into a catastrophic fire which trailed after the slowing aircraft and pulled around the left side after it came to a halt. When the crew turned off the runway, they inadvertently orientated the aircraft such that the wind would blow the fire onto the side of the fuselage. Even before the aircraft came to a halt, the captain ordered an evacuation from the right side of the aircraft over the PA system. After completing their evacuation drills and seeing flames on the captain's side of the aircraft, the pilots both escaped the aircraft through the co-pilot's sliding window. In the after part of the cabin, the fire was intense, and the flames were cracking and melting the windows, which, combined with the radiant heat coming through the fuselage, caused the passengers on the left side to stand and move into the aisle. On opening the forward right-hand R1 door, it jammed on the slide container lid, so after establishing that the left side was also a safe evacuation area, the purser opened the front left L1 door and began evacuating once a number of passengers who had become jammed in the galley area had been physically pulled free. One minute and ten seconds after the aircraft came to a halt, the purser freed the R1 door and evacuation began through that door as well. Beside the right over wing exit was a young lady who, after the encouragement of the other passengers, began trying to open her emergency hatch by pulling on her armrest, which was attached to it. The passenger beside her activated the handle marked emergency pull whereupon the 48-pound hatch fell into the lady's lap, trapping her. With assistance, the hatch was moved, and 45 seconds after stopping, the passengers began to use that exit as well. At the rear of the aircraft, the R2, right aft door, was opened by the crew member even before the aircraft came to a halt. The crew member was seen in the doorway, but the slide and door were obscured by thick black smoke. Nobody escaped through this door, 
and the two crew members in that area both died. In total, 17 passengers escaped through the front L1 door, 34 through the front R1 door, and 24 through the right overwing exit. Having self-initiated a deployment, the airfield fire service arrived as the L1 door opened and the evacuation started. The first unit concentrated on keeping the escape routes free of fire, whilst the second attacked the source. A third unit, which had been in the paint shop, arrived a few minutes later. The driver saw a hand waving in the right overwing exit, so he climbed onto the wing and pulled a boy clear of the body of a man trapped in the exit. The boy was the last evacuee to survive the accident. Engine failures and fires are hardly unknown in aviation, and this one was unremarkable. The fact that it occurred during the takeoff run and that the takeoff was promptly stopped was also unremarkable. The fire that developed was inevitable, considering the damage that was done to the fuel tanks, and the evacuation was initiated very promptly, even before the aircraft had come to a complete halt. The fire tenders arrived as the first doors opened, and the passengers were escaping within seconds of the exits being available. However, less than 60% of the passengers escaped with their lives. What had gone wrong? As the air accident report stated, there were many factors in the accident that should have resulted in a favourable outcome. The cabin was intact, the aircraft remained mobile and controllable, and no one was injured during the abandoned takeoff. The volume of fuel carried, although capable of producing a serious fire, was relatively small when compared with a typical amount, and the accident occurred at a well-equipped major airport with the fire services in attendance within 30 seconds of the aircraft stopping. However, 55 lives were lost. The initial failure within the left engine was obviously the primary cause of the accident, but it was only by chance that the debris ejected struck a fuel tank access panel. Had the number 9 combustor can hit the underside of the wing, the chances are it would have been deflected, but the access panel was considerably weaker than the main underwing structure, and as a result it was vulnerable. Once the wing tank was ruptured, the ignition of the leaking fuel was inevitable. The rejected takeoff was also conducted in accordance with the company's recommendations, and the crew's assessment of the tyre damage was understandable. However, once the fire warnings illuminated, they should probably have modified their actions. By turning his aircraft onto the taxiway, the captain placed it downwind of the rapidly developing conflagration, which worsened the situation. However, this was supported by his flying manual, which advised taxiing clear of the runway if conditions permitted, but it also suggested that, for a fire, consideration should be given to turning into wind before stopping. The board acknowledged that the situation the crew was dealing with was developing very rapidly, and furthermore the wind had earlier been light and variable. They considered that there was no doubt that the crew and the aviation community at large were quite unaware of the critical influence of light winds on a developing fire. 
The investigation concluded that it was vital for operators and ATC services to understand that all abandoned takeoffs and emergency landings should end with a full stop on the runway. The seven-knot wind present had a dramatic effect on the accident and subsequent investigations revealed that even a two-knot wind would have been significant, particularly during the fire's development. Not only did the wind drift the heat and flames directly onto the side of the fuselage, but the presence or absence of flames directly affected the perception of which doors were safe to use. A door furthest up the fuselage and away from the fire seemed to be the safest option. However, with the wind blowing as it did that day, the R1 door was in a low-pressure area created in the lee of the fuselage, and as soon as the fire breached the aircraft's skin and windows at the rear of the aircraft, the draft created drove the fire the length of the cabin, greatly reducing the chance of survival. As the aircraft slowed towards a halt, the captain made the PA evacuate on the starboard side, please. The call, however, was not heard properly due to a design anomaly. With the engine shut down, the PA volume was reduced to half since it was otherwise too loud on a quiet aircraft. The cue for this volume reduction came from the left engine, which, since it had failed, returned the PA to a low setting. As a result, the purser had to confirm with the captain what had been said before he was able to repeat an evacuation announcement himself. The investigation was able to establish that only a few of the 55 deaths were due to the fire itself. The vast majority were due to the toxic nature of the smoke that the burning cabin furniture was creating. It was described by those who escaped ahead of it as a thick, black, impenetrable wall of choking and irritating smoke that blinded them and made them gasp for air. Even a short exposure caused their eyes to appear frosted over with the acidic gases literally burning their throats. Of the 54 occupants who died on the aircraft, 80% had cyanide levels that would have led to incapacitation and in half of those the levels were fatal. In addition, 74% also had carbon monoxide levels high enough to render them unconscious, and again, half of those levels were above a fatal dose. Only six passengers had died from direct thermal assault. The poisonous fumes that invaded the cabin were by far the most dangerous aspect of the fire. Finding the escape lights almost impossible to see, as more and more became incapacitated, the aisle became blocked with immobile bodies. Nearly half of those who escaped from the overwing exit did so by folding down and climbing over seatbacks, in some cases unwittingly trapping other passengers. It was clear that less than half of those who had been engulfed by the smoke survived, and some of those only through the heroic efforts made to pull them clear. Some others collapsed but came round again just sufficient to finally escape. The cabin materials used aboard the 737 came under examination and the toxic gases that they released when burned revealed a horrifying list of deadly and incapacitating chemicals. 
hydrogen cyanide, nitrogen dioxide, hydrogen fluoride, hydrogen chloride, sulfur dioxide, ammonia, acrolein, benzene, toluene, styrene, the list went on. The board went to great lengths to examine the survivability of the accident, noting that a significant number of the dead did not suffer fatal burns. There were also areas of the aircraft where the seats survived the fire, and many of the plastic safety cards and magazines were unburned. This was in sharp contrast to the FAA's belief that a flashover would occur within two minutes of fire penetration into the cabin, with unsurvivable temperatures reaching 1,000 degrees centigrade, resulting in a critical reduction in oxygen levels. Although this can and has occurred in real life, there were too many variables to safely predict it as a likelihood. The aftermath of the accident resulted in truly mammoth efforts to discover exactly why there had been such a large loss of life and what might be done in the future to prevent a reoccurrence. Pilot procedures were examined and changed to ensure that the best actions were being promoted. The cabin crew received praise for assisting for as long as they did as they only retreated from the aircraft when they were in real danger of succumbing to the fire. The firefighting tactics used were examined, and where lacking they were improved, although the bravery of the firefighters themselves was never questioned. When they gained access to the cabin area some seven minutes after the fire started, an explosion blew one of them straight out of a door, and since the collapse of the fuselage was imminent, they were forced to retreat. The choke points within the cabin that delayed the evacuation were also highlighted. Cabins required a demonstration of a full evacuation within 90 seconds with half the exits unavailable, but this did not include the case where the cabin layout restricted flow, as in the Air Tours 737, or when only forward exits were available. A great deal of work was done looking at cabin sprinkler systems that could beat down toxic fumes, flames and heat, but the volume of water required was considerable even for a short time. One of the most controversial then, and still now, was the suggestion that smoke hoods should be provided. It was generally considered preferable for passengers to evacuate and get away from the danger as soon as possible without the complication and delay involved with the donning of unfamiliar equipment. Over the years, the provision of fire retardant covers and treatments to materials in the cabin has improved, but there is still considerable work required both in the material and the forms of testing. So, after all this time, there are still unanswerable questions on what is the best way to survive such an emergency. The best solution is undoubtedly a prompt evacuation, which requires alert passengers that are sensibly dressed, have listened to the emergency brief and prepared themselves properly. Now, where was my nearest escape exit? And may I have another glass of champagne, please? Yeah, figures. <laughs> yeah, well. That should have been the first question. <laughs> 
that was uh, that was a very um, interesting uh, incident. I thought Jeff, it created more questions. I think uh, at the time than it w- the industry were capable of answering. Yeah, a, a lot of uh, a lot of big questions there, and and just flat out unbelievable things like you know making the seats out of materials that when burned would create toxic gases. I mean, you know, as many people in the chat room said, what were they thinking? Well, it, that's true. But having said that, uh, there are a huge amount of materials that are in our ha- homes and in our cars uh, mm-hmm. and still in aircraft that when they get to a sufficiently high temperature, they will release toxic gases. <laughs> it's almost inevitable. Um, and they can try and protect um, the materials that do that. Um, then, uh, But eventually, they're going to start you know, poisoning you. And the only real answer is to get away from that environment as quickly as possible. Uh, the smoker thing has always been a bit of a controversial subject. Uh, I quite like, when I listened, I read the report, I quite like the idea of um, having water sprinklers. But, of course, uh, the practicality, uh, just for the two minutes of an evacuation, I think you had to carry 40 or even 80 gallons uh, of water just for the sprinkler system. But having said that, there's often some potable water left on board. Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, perhaps uh, it could potable. be potable. Uh, oh, yeah, potable. Oh, potable. No, not potable. Potable. Oh, potable. Some. Are you sure you got that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's left, and uh, perhaps that could uh, be connected. Uh, certainly, for an evacuation on takeoff, uh, that would be uh, possibly feasible. Another suggestion was that you could have an external. Um, port that the fire services could plug into to power it so you wouldn't have to carry any water in the aircraft a a fire engine could come at the back of the aircraft plug in and just you know flood the inside of the cabin with uh, misting water which would knock down the heat Mm -hmm. uh, all the uh, the fumes the heavy fumes and all the the heavy smoke Uh, and so you know that that's possibly doable but uh, now all the all the suggestions that were made, um, and I look in our current industry, the only ones that were really taken up were keeping the aisles wide and clear. I mean, the biggest problem in this particular aircraft was uh, they had a double bulkhead at the front that restricted access at the front of the cabin to the uh, doors to a, a, a width of 20 inches. Now, if you try... My hips are probably 20 inches wide. No, they're not. <laughs> well, all right then. Uh, I'm trying to think how uh, I've got a I've got a chest of around 48 inches. So I'm just trying to, oh, you can't work it out. Yeah. Uh, you certainly can't get two people through it. And yeah. um, it was quite easy for people to get jammed. In fact, that's exactly what happened. A whole bunch of people had got jammed and they were being pushed from behind and they couldn't free themselves. And if the cabin crew hadn't actually jerked people free, uh, pulled them physically uh, out of the, the log jam. Uh, no one would have got out of the front exits. So uh, they, uh, the trials afterwards uh, looked very carefully at uh, how people uh, might evacuate when they're in more of a panic, and they simply did that by offering them a, uh, a monetary prize for the first people out. So people were doing anything to get out of the airplane first to get, the, get their hands on the money. Uh, and uh, they had told them not, not to try and be an orderly 
uh, evacuation. They'd do anything they could to get out. And that was much more realistic. Uh, that was the first thing, uh, one of the things they did. And the other was they then said, right, the minimum distance you can have on an aisle for an evacuation is 30 inches. I don't know whether that's adhered to in the industry, but that's what they said was required on this aircraft. And it was 10 inches too narrow. Hmm. So a lot of good discussion going on in the uh, live chat room uh, regarding regarding this and the fact that um, which which kind of raised a question for me. I know the airplane that I fly was I'm not sure what it was certificated as far as the maximum uh, quantity of passengers. But I do know that for the longest time we were flying around with, uh, let's say, the uh, MD-90, I think we were flying around with 149 uh, seats and or, or 142, something like that. And then they, uh, they oh no, 149, that's right. And now it's like up to 160 now. They added, you know, a couple extra rows of seats. And so I think it was, we added like seven, I don't remember the exact numbers now, but several seats in both the 88 and the 90. And I'm thinking, so... Does that, why wouldn't they have to go and get the whole thing recertified for the, you know, the, the extra passengers? It seems to me and there must be some kind of a, an, an exemption or some kind of process they must go through. I'm sure my airline did that. I mean, they just wouldn't add extra seats if, they're, if they weren't allowed to. But it kind of begs the question, you know, so what happens when you certify an airplane for a certain number of seats? The airline comes up with uh, some kind of new seating system, which allows them to put more seats in the airplane. You know, is it now, is that, is that kosher? Is that loud? I, I guess must have to go through some kind of a regulatory uh, assessment and, and process for uh, approval, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah there, and there were a number of incidents I could have picked on to bring up this particular subject of evacuations. Um, there was uh, a three holer, I think, that uh, where the guy got way high on the glide slope. Uh, came down and uh, left it left it basically to the flare to try and check his rate of descent, and he he didn't pull the engines up in time, and he he basically ran out of airspeed trying to slow his rate of descent before he even got to the runway, and they they impacted short. The fuselage more or less survived, um, but uh, and there was of course the um, Saudi aircraft that turned back with the cargo fire that uh, landed back. And because they really didn't treat the situation with enough urgency, um, by the time they got to the end of the runway, uh, they were basically everyone on board was going to die because they never shut the engines down. They never got to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they couldn't, the firemen couldn't get on board to do anything because the aircraft was still pressurized. Running on the pressurized. Yeah. Um, so there are a number, but the one that I thought was incredible about this was that it never even got airborne. All it did was stop the takeoff. And as the uh, board inquiry said, this was an, should have been an incredibly survivable accident. Mm-hmm. And everything went right. The fire engines, for heaven's sake, were there in 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that's about as good as it gets. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm amazed that they got there that fast. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, they, they got eventually got three exits open. Um, so, you know, that's supposed to be it for a certification. But the certification never um, had the situation where the exits were only at one end. They always had an exit, one exit at either end. They never certify the aircraft with all the exits at the front or all the exits at the back. So that was an added problem. So mm-hmm. that, that was an interesting one. And the industry learned a lot from it, whether it has been a big enough learning 
curve for them, whether they've got to the top of that learning curve, I, I really don't know. Because one thing I don't know about my interest in it, my industry now is are the modern aircraft, how well are they fire protected? How well have they changed the materials? What mm -hmm. is what has actually changed because that's an incredibly difficult thing to research. You can find out after an accident because there's a beautifully presented board of inquiry uh, document for you to read to find out. But uh, trying to dig in and find the documents to say, how do they test fire retardant seats nowadays? Um, it's really tough. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, you know, just hearing the uh, retelling of this incident um, and accident, I guess, um, made me really think about you know, the fact that you really do have to think about as a pilot when you're when you're aborting or you're landing in a situation where you're coming to a stop, you know, which way that wind's blowing and make sure that if you have a, if you know you have a fire, you know, position the airplane you know, appropriately so that the you're uh, you know, you're kind of facing upwind so that the fire is going the other direction and give your yeah going there the other direction or you're at least into wind uh we mm -hmm. we used to do the same jeff when i joined uh acme red uh the advice was uh when you got just about at the end of your your uh, abort you swung the airplane and pointed it into wind mm -hmm. we don't do that anymore uh, and the mm -hmm. reason we don't do that anymore is that uh, the fire services for a big aircraft say we, the last thing we want to do when we try and come up to a 747 or a big A340 is have to drive on the grass to access parts of the aircraft because the grass may be swampy. We may not get these huge fire tenders they have uh, on soft ground to the places they need. So they say, no, what we want you to do is to stop straight ahead and let us deal with the fire because we have – the, the equipment to deal with it, and we will beat the fire down. Uh, so you just stop straight ahead so that we can use the sides of the runway to access all around the aircraft. So that's the guidance we uh, stick to. That, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, the, the chances are with the fire equipment there, if they have access to the airplane, you have a much better chance of success um, than you would if you – had it off to the side and they had to get onto the grass or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Good because point. there's some airports I go to where I wouldn't necessarily have that confidence yeah. in the fire services, in which case I probably would um, take a turn if it was sensible. Yeah. Well, you know, in the future when all these things are being flown by um, automation, then we would, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that it'll know exactly what to do. <laughs> exactly. A little wind vane at the top of the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. That was another excellent uh, installment of. I think so. I've already tales. done the next one. Looking forward to uh, hearing that one. That's oh, uh, an interesting okay. one as well. I'm looking forward it, to it as well. Yeah, it concerns pilot seats. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, you think so? <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, you will. You'll have to come back for more if you're listening to this episode. Uh, let's see. We've done this one, then that one. Uh, oh, here's an interesting one. Liz sent this in, Liz Piper. Uh, this is from ADN.com. I think that's a local media outlet. Uh, Alaska Dispatch News. There we go. Jet about to land hits caribou at Dead Horse Airport. <laughs> I have to rename the airport. I was, gonna, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> so. Absolutely. That's the wrong name for the airport. 
Uh, a plane trying to land at Dead Horse Airport on Alaska's North Slope hit and killed a caribou with its landing gear on Friday. The shared they're pretty serv- big, aren't they? Yeah, they're huge. Okay. Um, the shared services Boeing 737 operated by ConocoPhillips and jointly owned with BP aborted its landing around 11.05 a.m. at the airport after the flight crew saw a caribou on the runway. Uh, during the abort procedure, the caribou was struck by the landing gear and perished. Uh, the pilot saw the caribou prior to landing and initi- initiated a go-around, but not in time to avoid contact with the caribou. After the plane hit the animal, the flight crew conducted a subsequent low pass over the airport so maintenance personnel on the ground could make a preliminary damage assessment prior to landing. The plane then landed at the Dead Horse Airport without further incident, she said. No damage to the plane was identified, and it is back in service. Uh, Dead Horse Airport operations workers removed the caribou carcass and conducted a runway inspection. No passengers, flight crew, or ground crew were injured, she said. Scott Austin, foreman at the Dead Horse Airport, said the caribou ran out into the runway as the plane was on its final approach and was decapitated by the aircraft. Don't lose your head. <laughs> Last week, a herd of about 4,000 caribou passed through and ended up on parts of the runway. It took airport workers nearly half an hour to herd them all off, he said, and this was likely a straggler. You get stragglers all the time, he said. Once they start coming through, migrating will have them for weeks. Anyway, sad sad for the caribou, beautiful animal, but uh, a, a good outcome for the 737. Apparently no damage. And for the airport workers, they had caribou steaks all week. That is true as well. I, I, I would imagine that caribou would be good eating. I don't know. Well, someone said it's reindeer. I, I remember having a reindeer steak once. Oh, so. okay. Yeah, I think it was called uh, Zuma or something. Zuma. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know. Zuma or Dancer. Dancer, that was it. Oh, Prancer and Blitzen. Uh-huh. Yeah, one of those, I think. Okay. Oh, poor reindeer. What is Santa going to do? <laughs> Dang it. Well, they'll uh, use six white boomers, as the uh, Australians always used to think. Oh. Six white uh, kangaroos. Oh, a, okay. Not a name for a kangaroo is a boomer. I never heard of that. Okay, interesting. Um, We're not allowed to sing the song anymore because the singer <laughs> uh, is persona non grata now. Really? Oh. A gentleman called Rolf, Rolf Harris. Really? Okay. Yeah. The, uh, all the Aussies yeah. will know. The, the song about the, uh, the, uh, about the uh, kangaroos? Yeah, the six okay. white boomers. Gotcha. I don't suppose it's sung very much now. Okay. Well, we'll have to do our own research to figure out why. Let's see. Kevski writes in uh, from Norway. Uh, Kevin from Norway. He, uh, he calls himself Kevski. Uh, just found your conversation with Joe on Chicago Center. Remember, I talked about uh, going into um, Madison uh, last week, and I was trying to find the audio from uh, Live ATC. And he says, in case you oh, haven't yeah. found it yourself yet, here it is. Unfortunately, you can only hear Joe and not you. But if you play it on the show, you can always fill in the blanks live. Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> and he goes, warning, right. I did not edit out the call sign. Uh-oh. Okay. So I'll have to do that in post, apparently. So, uh here we go. Did I did I write this? I mean, no, shoot. Okay, hang on. Let me do something here so we can all hear. While you're doing that, I'm just going to tell Barbara Parrish that 
a 737 in your head will usually be a quick painless death. Yeah. I'm I'm sure of it. Delta 782, is uh, Captain Jeff on there? Uh, who's asking? How about that? Go APG. Yeah, go APG. Who's this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I just uh, listened to one of your shows on the way in. Really? It sucks, doesn't it? My name is Joe. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice to meet you in person. Yeah, nice to meet you. I was just listening to your uh, feedback show. That's uh, I'm a little behind. Uh, I wish I had a little behind. But I enjoy it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for enjoying it. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, listen, I heard you were coming in here, and so uh, glad to be able to chat with you. Well, I'm glad I had a chance to chat with you as well. Enjoy your time in Oshkosh tomorrow. Thanks a lot. Yeah, good. Good to hear. <laughs> I don't remember what I said. Delta 782, sometime on the show, mentioned the difference between the uh, MD-80s, the 82s, the 88s, and the 90s, if you could, and the 717. I'd be interested to know what all the differences are. Uh, basically numbers. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was funny, wasn't it? And Delta 782, contact Chicago Center or make that... Uh, Madison Approach on 120.1. You have a nice night, and have fun tomorrow. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. <laughs> I don't remember what I said. Very good, Jeff. There was a lot of long pauses there. <laughs> yeah, well, it takes some time for the uh, signal to get from the airplane to the ground in my airplane. <laughs> well, it's that long piece of string you have yeah. on the uh, Mad Dog, isn't it? So I, that's really strange how it, it picked up everything he was saying, but none of what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, he could have been, uh, he could have had a few frequencies ganged. Ah, uh, that's uh, right. It might have been picking up one of the frequencies that you True. weren't on. Good point. Good point. That's pro probably very likely what happened there. For those who may not realize, some controllers work several frequencies. So the aircraft could be on one frequency, but he's broadcasting on three. Mm -hmm. So if ATC Live picked up one of the frequencies that Jeff wasn't on, it's still get the controller, but not Jeff. And it's very frustrating for us as pilots because. You know, we, we can't tell when other people are talking on other frequencies. So a lot of times, you know, you'll be talking and then he's like, well, standby, standby. You know, we're going, well, I'm sorry. We can't hear the, <laughs> we can't hear any yeah. other frequency. We don't know if somebody's talking or not, you know. Yeah, very true. Anyway. Um, so, uh, okay. So the differences between all these different airplanes, basically they're all um, uh, versions of the, the venerable DC-9. A DC-9-10-20-20, well, I'm not sure if there was a 20, but dash 30, dash 50. And then actually the uh, the MD-80 series was uh, the DC-9-80. And then at that point, um, McDonnell and uh, Douglas Corporation were merged together and they decided that uh, they would go to a new naming scheme and call these new stretched, newer versions, newer generation versions of the DC-9 the MD series for McDonnell Douglas Corporation. And uh, so the 80s started out, and they're essentially all pretty much the same as, as you get higher in numbers, uh, like the 82, 83, 85, 87, 88. Uh, they are um, all newer generations, and they tend to get more advanced avionics. As um, Like, for instance, if, you're, if you see an old MD-80, the avionics that were installed were all the old steam gauges. Now, a lot of the 
instrumentation on the airplane that I fly are kind of it's kind of a mixture of the old style and the newer style uh, displays, and uh, also differences in the uh, the the thrust uh, of the engines. Uh, when you make the jump from the 80 series to the 90 series, then you go from uh, lower ba- bypass turbofans to a high bypass fan, a different manufacturer. The Pratt & Whitney uh, engines on the 80 series and the uh, International Aero Engines um, V2500 series um, high bypass fans on the 90. And then uh, the Boeing 717 was really the MD95, but then uh, uh, somewhere in there in the... In the 90s, I guess, uh, Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas Corporation and slapped the Boeing nameplate on the on the MD-95 and called it a Boeing 717. It gets uh, really complicated, but uh, that airplane is actually smaller than the 80 series and 90 series. Um, oh, Siri thinks that I'm asking her a question. Hey, Siri, is at Here's 90 series? Shows. I don't want it. Game I, of Thrones. I don't want and Rick and Morty. I don't want... Shall I read the rest? No. Stop. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I don't know why Siri... I must have said something that got Siri's attention. Anyway, uh, the uh, the Boeing 717 is actually a smaller, lower capacity uh, version of uh, the... Uh, the MD series and uh, has a engine, I think, manufactured by a consortium, Rolls Royce, BMW, and maybe a few other uh, engine manufacturers. And uh, the uh, displays in the cockpit are the the new generation kind of all in one kind of displays, the kind of thing you'd see on your Garmin 1000, although probably not as nice <laughs> as the Garmin stuff. But uh, anyway, so that's essentially the the differences uh, between all the different numbers and models in the series. I, I know there are, there's a lot more to it than that. I'm just trying to make it uh, short and sweet, but uh, I'm sure that Wikipedia would do a good job of, uh, or some good websites out there on the McDonnell Douglas, the mad dogs out there to uh, get all the uh, nitty gritty details on the differences. And I'm sure that Captain Nick, you probably have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> I could do a whole plain tale about those different no, series by the sounds of it. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> okay. worry, I, won't. I won't inflict it on you. Thank you. Or anybody else for that matter. <laughs> uh, let's see how we doing here in time. I think we're still okay. So we're, we're past the two and a half hour point. Uh, we're going to go a little bit more here and then uh, we'll call it quits. Um, Don, fair, we haven't got that much more. No, we don't, which is a good thing. Don, uh, uh, from white, he's calling, he calls himself the white mountain wingnut. Hello, APG crew community. And those who are being forced to listen to this while riding in the car with someone infected with the syndrome. <laughs> I like that. I absolutely love the show and I've only just started listening. I'm a service technician for a packaging company and travel all over the country, servicing and repairing packaging equipment for food and medical companies. Most of my travel is by car with the occasional flight. My drives have become more enjoyable since I've started listening. It almost feels like a road trip with av geeks, or as I call them, wing nuts, whenever I am listening to APG. I've listened to six shows over the last five days while I've been traveling. Wow, 
I'm really curious on how often y'all come through the New England area. I'm sure Dana would uh, may come through more, assuming he lives or at least used to live near the Boston area. Based on the Red Sox shirt I've seen him wear and the original U.S. accent. I'd love to attend a meetup and meet more wingnuts like me, especially in the New Hampshire, Maine, and Boston area. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess you didn't start listening early enough, Don. We had a uh, we had a meetup in uh, Maine not too long ago with uh, with uh, Maine man Micah and Mark. And uh, so, if we do it again, I'm I'm hoping that you'll be able to meet up with us. Anyway, I've had a 10-year flying hiatus since I earned my private pilot license in 2007, although I've been flying the virtual skies on my home flight simulator, racking up 400 hours, and I'm ready to jump back in and do it for real again. Thank you for your continued efforts and countless hours of entertainment you've given me on my long, boring drives, and I'm happy to be part of the selected infected by the APG syndrome. Blue skies, Don, the White Mountain Wingnut. So Don must be in New Hampshire. Uh, I think that's the White Mountains. Um, yeah. Sounds a nice part of uh, the country. It is. And uh, Dana, yep, you're right. He is from Boston. And uh, he's an insufferable Boston uh, sports supporter. Um, Red Sox uh, and even worse, the Patriots. Man, when it, when it gets to be football season, watch out. If you're not a Patriot fan, you better get out of his way. Um, so, um, but I think that Boston has banned him. Isn't there some kind of a perimeter that he's not allowed to penetrate when he's up in that area of the country? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, but he, yeah, I think he wears <laughs> someone else's hat now to get in there. <laughs> uh, so great to hear from you, Don. Uh, welcome to the community. Uh, I think you'll be right at home here. And uh, and as, as mentioned in several places and uh, some audio earlier in the show that the best part of all of this is not really the show. It's the community. So absolutely. Um, let's see. Steve writes. Wow. This is a long one. Settle in. Lord. Get, get, yeah. get a beer or two. Uh, but it's worth it. Trust me. Uh, let's see. Greetings. APG crew. After hundreds of episodes, two Atlanta meetups and lots of wishing I'd found the time to go to Fonbra. And Pittsburgh, I think the time has come for me to submit my very first APG feedback. He's been holding it inside, folks, so he's letting it out. I've started putting together audio feedback a couple of times, but let's be honest. Up against the likes of Jeff Zvelt, NPR-like tones, Micah's slice of life brilliance, and Nick's must-be-polished-in-book-and-audio-format plain tales, I'd be more like Miami Hick up against Miami Rick. Well, wait a minute. Maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Hmm. A thought for next time. In any case, let me start with the obligatory and fully deserved thanks to Captain Jeff for creating the incredible podcast and community that APG has become. Living and working in the Atlanta metro area for the last 11 years has given me ample time to discover podcasts as being the very best means of turning my seven to nine hours of weekly commuting into time well spent. And my three hours with APG Itis every week is my favorite. By way of introduction, I'll share a little bit about myself because it may resonate with at least a few of your listeners. I'm an aviation nut trapped in the body of a telecom professional. The first time I ever flew a plane was when I was roughly four or five years old when I started building cockpits out of tinker toys and fiddlesticks, complete with turning yokes and movable throttles. My imagination took me into the bluest, cumulus-accented skies I could imagine, although I have to admit that for every landing that Captain Nick would be proud of, I would have another where the yoke came apart in my hand in the flare. 
fortunately back then, imaginary passengers and their estates weren't as litigious as they are today. Fast forward a couple of years, in early elementary school, probably in the early 80s, I was on an American Airlines 727 on my way from New York to Florida via some intermediate airport. There were three of us in my family at that time, and I was seated next to an old guy with a mustache and cowboy boots. Of course, they were all either kids or old guys back then, but the cowboy boots were new to a kid from New York. I remember he was reading Frank Herbert's Dune, and I asked him what it was about. As these things used to go in the early 80s before everyone had headphones and eye whatevers, it wasn't long before he had told me he was a private pilot, whatever that was, started explaining to me the various flaps in the wing and what they did. One of them made it turn, the other helped it fly slower so, I could, so it could land. Well, you might not be surprised that by the time we landed, I considered myself a bona fide aviation expert and was more than ready to help when it turned out that both the pilot and co-pilot had the fish for dinner. <laughs> nice airplane reference. I could go on and on, but the summary of the next 13 or 14 years is what I collected, uh, is that I collected lots of sets of American Airlines wings, fell in love with the DC-10 after a family trip from JFK to Puerto Rico, read tons of aviation books, and owned every version of Flight Simulator, starting with the venerable Sublogic Flight Simulator 2 on my Commodore 64, flown not so skillfully with an Atari joystick, while also going to school and playing soccer and all that normal kid stuff. But I was always thinking about, thinking about planes and flying, but actually being a pilot because I was slightly nearsighted. Uh, alas, either I was born 10 years too soon or LASIK 10 years too late. Oh well, net result, I never really planned on flying as being a professional career option when I was a kid. Fast forward to 1980, uh, 1998, Fresh out of school and working my first real job in the Philadelphia area, a very dear friend of mine who knew how much I wanted to fly encouraged me to take my first lesson. A gentleman I worked with recommended the Ken Marson Aero Club out of Kilo Victor Alpha Yankee, South Jersey Regional, about 45 minutes or so away from where I lived in Philly. This turned out to be a real flying club, old school and it has been my model for flying venue perfection ever since, and to some degree, it spoiled me completely. Imagine a place outside a Class B airspace where you can find a 3,600-foot-long, 50-foot-wide piece of tarmac with minimal other private air traffic. Imagine you have access to something like 15 different airplanes and multiple types to suit your preference. Over the course of my training, I progressed from Cherokee 140s to Warriors to Cherokee 180s and even mixed in some Archer hours for good measure. They had 150s and 172s and I believe a 182. For the RG, RG folks, retractable gear, there were two Archers, a decathlon for the fun-loving tail dragger types, twins of various sizes for those seeking multi-training, including a Navajo that was once proudly and famously served as Arnold Schwarzenegger's plane in one of those shoot 'em up movies he used to make. Imagine cross countries to Wildwood and Nary, uh, and Nary a control tower in sight, except for the mandatory minimums during training. Imagine flights up the Jersey coast, west of Manhattan, stopping in Millville mid-lesson for lunch and not having your instructor even think of charging you for the time on the ground. Here's the best part. Back in those days, I was renting a Warrior for roughly $47 per hour, wet, tack time, so it was really only a $50 hamburger, At the uh, and the instructor was about $15 an hour. 
I don't know if there's anybody listening now who might remember retired U.S. Navy, Navy Lieutenant Commander Ben Antrim, but he was my first CFI and the best of the bunch. He challenged me and encouraged me at the same time in a way that gave me confidence. And while in years past I've been a reasonably competent and confident pilot, at one time Ben had me feeling like I was literally wearing the airplane. And that was a great thing, a feeling. Ben, if you're still out there, know that you made a difference in at least one young kid's life. Thank you for that. Oh, back to the club and why it was so awesome. Now imagine that every time you came back from a lesson, you could go back to the clubhouse, grab a beer out of the dinged up fridge, plop down in a worn recliner with a bunch of other guys to hang or fly for a while before you drive home to ground-based reality USA. And note, I said, a beer, okay? I've been looking for a place like that ever since and have never found one, not in New York, Virginia, or Georgia. If anyone knows of such a place, please let me know so I can start looking for a job near there. To abbreviate what has already gone on too long, it could become a very long story indeed. Suffice it to say that I eventually got my ticket, suffered the vagaries of the dot-com boom and bust, and have started and stopped flying a couple of times throughout the year since, and likely will do so again. But will never change, but what will never change is my undying love for aviation and flying. And whether or not I am participating in sacred practice of airmanship directly at any given period of my life, I still feel like aviation is an integral part of who I am. Becoming a part of the APG community has opened up yet another window into a world of heavy iron and to some degree light aluminum that I have often observed and wondered about from afar. For many reasons have been discussed here and elsewhere, the dream of flying is one that has become more difficult to achieve over time, perhaps more than anything else. Certainly more than the personal enjoyment I derive from listening to APG every week. I think that the service all of you are providing to those who dream of becoming a part of any facet of the aviation community is incredibly valuable. Go ahead and blush, APG crew. You're all awesome, and you deserve the praise. Now, on to a modest proposal before I conclude. So, some of you may be aware that almost every year there is an awesome event in Washington State of and not swamp of, called Aviation Geek Fest. I had the privilege of attending for the first time last year. Over the course of an evening and two days, about 300 av geeks from around the world were treated to a series of incredible events, such as an evening reception and tour of the Dreamliner Center, where Boeing usually hosts airline execs who are picking out all the accoutrements associated with their new bin liners, a VIP tour floor level, not walkway level, of the large factory that makes the 747, 777, and 787, a tour of the 737 factory, a trip to the Boeing Delivery Center, where my first 737 MAX, a.k.a. Spirit of Renton, was on the ramp, especially for us to walk around, drool over, and ask questions of the various Boeing employees stationed around the plane about why it was so much better than the A320 CEO and NEO. A day at the museum flight, a walk around tour of the dream lifters that the very lucky Miami Rick may someday be flying, special events at the Fantasy of Flight Museum, including a great dinner and talk by Boeing execs about their future, three priceless days spent in the company of fellow av geeks, second in sense of community only to the APG community. The proposal just recently has been announced that the 2017 Av Geek Fest will be held between September 29th and October 2nd. 
tickets haven't gone on sale yet and they can be hard to get. But I do believe that an APG community meetup at the AGF may be on or in order this year. And if any of the crew can make it, so much the better. Here's the link for anyone who might be interested. And then he has the link uh, via AirlineReporter.com. Again, that's the uh, Aviation Geek Fest, I believe. Uh, let's see. Well, with that said, I'll wrap this up. Thanks again to Jeff, Nick, Steph, Dana, and Rick, past and hopefully future, for all that you do week in and week out, like clockwork and just like Acme's on-time operating schedule. And thanks to the community that gives them the inspiration and support they need to make it all happen. Keep up the great work, and I'll be looking forward to that next ATL meetup whenever that might be. Best regards, Stephen Wisniewski. All right. Well, for your first piece of feedback, Steve, <laughs> now, I've met Steve. Uh, he was at the um, uh, most recently that the uh, uh, one we had at the Orm Ormsby's Tavern um, where we did the uh, live show. Remember that, Captain Nick? Oh, yes. Very good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a great piece of feedback, actually. It was really nicely written. Yes. He's a very good writer. And I'm sorry I stumbled in a few places there, but uh, my... I think my tongue was getting ahead of my mouth or something, but uh, yeah, good stuff. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Now, now I know that Nick is probably just chomping at the bit or champing at the bit, which is, I'm afraid I blanked out that, that sentence, what, <laughs> that, that, that paragraph, actually, uh, what was it again? Something about Boeing's and bin liners. And <laughs> yeah. Something, something to do with your favorite aircraft manufacturer uh, up in the Seattle area, the uh, yeah, aviation yeah. Well, geek fest. Uh, wild. Um, what do they say? Wild something couldn't drag me there. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, I, 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 I actually, I, I, I just jest because I think I'd probably find it fascinating. Yeah. I'd like I to might, go to the uh, Airbus factory as well. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, so uh, I mean, to be fair, I'm an geek uh, of, of all types, so uh, so I'll I'll uh, take an interest uh, wherever I am. So yeah. that kind of would be good. I don't think I'll get be able to get out there, uh, but um, it wouldn't do my reputation any good, would it? No, but you know what? We can uh, kind of come up with some kind of a uh, some kind of a what what do you call it like a disguise, a disguise? yeah a disguise and nobody will know it's you there this you big go. tall guy with a white beard and you know you can wear like a different hat nobody will notice yeah 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 i'll, we won't I'll tell put anybody. my hat on backwards or yeah <laughs> so steven wisniewski thank you he uh i always have trouble with his last name um i, I think i keep calling it wisniewski but it's wisniewski uh, he f spelled that out for me phonetically so thank you very much uh i mean a lot of great stuff you had in there and thank you for all the uh, praise that you heaped upon the show and the community and but you know what um you're right about one thing this community is just awesome and i'm so glad that you're a part of it and i'm so glad that you're um, uh, also part of the coffee fund cadre and uh and this aviation geek fest coming up here i don't know what do you think gang people listening is this something that we should do i i think it sounds a great idea where exactly is it now, i understand it's in washington state seattle i mean there's a big place yeah, Seattle. Seattle. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Well, we do a um, a flight to Seattle now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'd have to go in a bin liner to get there, and mm -hmm. then I'd see bin liners. Yeah, it might be a kind of too much of an overload for you, though. Yeah, and I might have a garbage overload. You know what? Bin liners. You might be in such emotional distress that you may actually attempt to 
jump out of the airplane was while it's taxiing in. <laughs> yeah, to get away from it. <laughs> well, it was a 737 that kid jumped out of. I know. I can't blame him. <laughs> oh, anyway. So uh, we'll we'll start thinking about this and uh, we'll get some feedback from others uh, uh, from what they think. And I don't know when these things – I've heard that – when these tickets go on sale or they release them, they they get snapped up like within minutes. So I'm not sure, you know, if, if we can pull this off or not. But uh, Steve, uh, send us some more information about this and, and maybe we can come up with something. Uh, the problem I'm going to have is that um, that is September, was it? 29? Yeah. Uh, let's see. What did he say? September. Uh, um. Uh, September 29th. Yeah, September 29th and October uh, 2nd. October the 2nd. That's weird. I thought he said it was two nights and a day. No, an evening and two days. Okay. Well, that doesn't make any sense. September 29th, 31st, and, uh, and 2nd. That's four days, right? Maybe they do two of these. I don't oh, know. Perhaps. I'm sure people in the chat room uh, are yelling right now. I am... On holiday in Italy. I'm sorry oh. to say, I'm missing lots. That holiday is very badly positioned, isn't it? Yeah, that's a shame. You blew it with uh, Dr. Steph now and, yep. uh, and also the AppGeek thing. Oh, well. Yep, I'm, I'm actually just wiping my brow with relief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Woo, you got a good excuse. Exactly All right. right. All right, well. well I, I must admit, a few beers in Tillman's uh, microbrewery would have been fun. Yeah, uh, that would that would be for sure. I don't think they serve beer in at uh, Seattle. Oh, Seattle well, certainly has the, fa for the factory. Yeah, they have a lot of gr yeah, probably not much at the Boeing factory, but uh, Seattle's a great town for beer. Uh, in oh, fact, right, okay. uh, craft brewing is uh, a lot of roots to craft uh, the craft brewing renaissance in uh, our country. At least the first one back in the uh, late eighties and nineties. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, with that, I think it's going to be another long show. Sorry about that. But uh, we did knock out quite a bit of feedback. And uh, thanks again to uh, everybody who took the time to send us feedback, especially the audio feedback. It was awesome. Especially you, Mrs. Nev. She doesn't listen to the show, though. So I'm sure Nev will just have to kind of relay that information to her. Um, yeah. Let's see. If you want to learn more about the show, of course, always head over to our great website, AirlinePilotGuy.com, where you can find out more info about the, the crew and the community and uh, merchandise and uh, YouTube stuff and audio stuff, all, all the places we are in the, uh, uh, the media world, including social media. Uh, Captain Nick, would you like to tell inform the uh, folks listening about the social media presence? Certainly, we're on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash airline pilot guy. And you can uh, interact with the crew on Twitter. Uh, and our Twitter handle is at APG Crew. And I think you'll have to let Hillel out now for this slack. Hillel! Hillel, are you in there? Oh, hang on! Okay, it's time. <laughs> that was Kermit the Frog. <laughs> APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thanks! 
many times? <laughs> Kermit again. I don't know where he keeps popping up. Hey, did you hear that Kermit's, uh, Kermit's voice has been sacked? Yeah, it's a new a new person uh, now uh, yeah. doing it, right? Yeah. Apparently he was really grumpy. He was a bit of an old curmudgeon. Ah. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, um, that that about does it. Oh, we mentioned the apps a few times in the show, so you know where to get them. They're free. No ads. Uh, They're brilliant as well. Yeah. They're fantastic. Yeah. All right. And with that, I guess it's time now for us to say, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's been a nice one, Jeff. Well done. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine opinions expressed on the airline pilot guy podcast may not represent the views opinions or policies of any airline real or fictionalized mentioned implied or accidentally slipped by any of the participants guests or feedback providers you may or may not have heard may or may not believe you may have heard on this or any prior episode of the airline pilot guy podcast